Welcome to episode 8 of Chin Music, a podcast presented by Fangraphs. If you survived three and a half hours of me and Ben Clemens talking last week, uh, congratulations, you passed the test and welcome to episode 8. Uh, the revolving chair of co-host turns its way to the lovely town of East Brunswick, New Jersey, and joining me is uh, a baseball historian. Uh, you can listen to his podcast, Infinite Inning. He is the author of Forging Genius, Casey Stingle, uh, former editor-in-chief and current consulting editor, we'll find out what that means later, of Baseball Prospectus, and just uh, one of the most heartbreakingly good people I know, and there's there's oh. not a lot of them left. It's Stephen Goldman. Stephen, how are you? I'm good. I always say the same thing about you, because you know Baseball <laughs> Prospectus- Stephen, I tell the truth, and you lie. No, I am telling the truth, because, I mean, I, I've actually said- you know the bit in the Bible about finding one good man in Sodom. Well, during my first run at Baseball Prospectus, that was Kevin Goldstein. I say that, I say it so often, you you heard I didn't even have to pause to make up the words, because it was just true. You were the one rational person I could always rely on. And that didn't mean we always agreed about everything all the time, but I don't like relationships like that anyway. A little contention is good. Yeah, and it, that goes for any relationship, I you know. There's a great Billy Bragg song in the line is, I can't sleep with someone I can't fight. <laughs> I mean, that there is something about creative friction. And some sometimes I do wonder, I mean, my, my marriage is very pacific. Not a lot of argument in it at all. Like, we agree on so many things and we share the same interests and that's why we like each other. That's why we got married. At the same time, sometimes I think... Wouldn't it be better if we had more stuff to disagree about? <laughs> Wouldn't we grow more? <laughs> maybe. Or we, yeah, would maybe we'd be less happy as well. What did you what do you want? Happiness or growth? <laughs> it's like I said to somebody the other day, I was joking about they were they were saying that their spouse is very terse, doesn't say much, but they demonstrate their affection through acts instead of words. They every day they do make many wonderful gestures as opposed to saying stuff. And I quoted the very cheesy Billy Joel line, I don't want clever conversation. And she said, man, that's a demeaning line, isn't it? I mean, that really <laughs> implies that that person isn't capable anyway. So, okay, it's not what I want. But you should be careful what you wish for is, is the truth. Honestly. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk about uh, the beginning of the season and, and, and make – Really hot takes. That's all you can do after six <laughs> games or so. Um, we'll talk about a few other things in the news. Uh, we're going to talk to Bradford William Davis about the All-Star Game fiasco or decision or however you want to put it with the, them leaving Atlanta and now going to Colorado. Uh, we'll talk about our musical guests. We'll do some emails and then we'll catch up and figure out what the hell's going on with Steven. Uh, so, Steven... We are one week into the season, 
And I was looking at, you know, I was getting ready. We know we're going to talk about what's going on. And I was looking at the standings and things have kind of already coalesced in a weird way. You know, if I told you right now that this is how it would end, the National League, the, the your division champs would be the Phillies, the Reds and the Dodgers. That wouldn't be overly shocking. I think the Reds are minor surprise, but that division seems wide open anyway. And then your wildcard teams were St. Louis and San Diego. That you go, yeah, maybe a Cardinal surprise you, but it's not shocking. Right. Um, you know, if I told you the Astros won the West and the Twins won the Central, you'd go, whatever. And then, of course, you have the Baltimore Orioles <laughs> leading the American League East with a four and two record. That that would be kind of your your one your one big shock. But um, like, what are your your big? You have any big early surprises so far? I want it all to be real. You know, I I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we went through 2020 and we had the 60 game season and we've spent all winter saying like Matt Chapman, just to pick a player at random, right? Matt Chapman was hurt. He had the hip labrum thing. So his calling card, which was the incredible defense, that was kind of compromised. And then the bat kind of went away too. But as with him and everybody else, we just sort of say shrug, small sample. Doesn't mean anything whether the guy Juan Soto hit like Ted Williams, the second coming or maybe the third. If you count the beginning of Frank Thomas's career, was that real? Was that his talent level going forward? Shrug, small sample. So now here we are and we know as long as things remain sort of how they're going, it would be un, uh, inaccurate to say that we're through the pandemic, that the pandemic is under control. But still, we're at least in baseball, we are plowing ahead. In Texas, we're really plowing ahead. <laughs> and, I mean, we have 162 games. And for, I, I think, not just analysts, but fans, too, you want it to be real now. Now give us the real information. We are now through week one of this novel as opposed to a novella. And we want this information to be solid. But it's it's not any more solid than what we had last year. And I'll give you a very Stephen Goldman analogy here. I often think at this time of year that the 1948 Philadelphia A's, who were managed by a guy who had active Alzheimer's and had players like Elmer Velo and Sam Chapman and Barney McCoskey, Ferris Fane, famous late in life for being busted for having a marijuana farm like more than once, that, that was their lineup, and yet they led the American League into early August. And again, no one remembers the 48. What they remember about that season is actually it's the last time that Cleveland won anything. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just easy to, to keep that in mind and say, no, don't, don't look at anything until – or at least don't look at it seriously until, I don't know, a month or six weeks from now or something like that. Well, I mean, is that, that, that's my question. Like, what is your – What's your line? Like, when do you go, okay, let's, something real is going on? Because, I, I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but actually, I'm ready to make some conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can't. You know, one of the things that, as as BP editor, whether in the books or on the site, I commissioned over and over again, whoever the stat guy was du jour, I could name the names, but it could, it could be Nate Silver, it could be Clay Davenport, it could be any of those guys. I would say, tell me when it's real. Because for me... As a kid, one of the defining moments of of any baseball season was the 1984 Tigers. And the 1984 Tigers opened the season by going 35 and 5. So by 
June 1st, the American League was just, or at least the East, was academic. Right. And and indeed, they did go on to win the World Series pretty and easily. They, and they won 108 games. Yeah. No, they slowed down a little because, again, 35 and 5 is some insane like insane pace over over the course of the season. I think in the in the second half they were just a good team as opposed to a god level team. But they locked that thing up early and so for a while that was like the Munich for baseball for general managers for years. They would say well, we have to be like the 84 Tigers. You got to end this thing early and mm-hmm. everyone talked about the fast start. And of course it's not always true. But I always wanted to know when is it real? When is it real? And I would always get different answers, <laughs> which means I don't know. I would ask these people who are, are smarter than I am. But by that, certainly by that 40-game mark, you have a very good indicator that what a team is doing is real. And arguably, sometimes you see it by the 15 to 20-game mark. So what the Red Sox have done to date, although they've evened up their record at this point, what the I mean, this this OK, what the Pirates are doing is real. They really are a one in five team. But, you know, the the Reds five and one in part because they played the Pirates. Not so sure about that. So right. we'll we'll know better in a couple of weeks. And I, and I guess some of the things I think that I already feel are, are, are more reinforcements of things I felt a week ago before game started. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I thought that the Rays were not we're going to have a, a pretty big drop and they have not looked good. Um you know, I thought the Astros were going to have some pitching issues, but they were going to score a million runs. That, you know, all I've gotten, it's not like I've changed anything. It's just more like what's happened so far has reinforced that. Um, but let's, you know, let's talk about some like historical things. I mean, I saw someone talk about it. I mean, the Oakland started off 0-6 and only four teams, four teams ever have made the playoffs after starting 0-6. So at that point, 0-6 becomes somewhat, you know, statistically significant now. Yeah, I think it does. And part of that is the competition around you. Like if you think of what was it, the 73 National League East or to go to a, that 84 year again, the AL West that year, where I think that that um, the Royals won the division at like 82 and 80. Right. The the Pirates and the Mets were in that race in 73. And both of those teams were were barely over 500. The problem for the A's right now, and you already alluded to this, is that the Astros are five and one, whereas they're one and six, so they're already four and a half games out. They have to play five games better than the A. Uh, excuse me, the Astros, the rest of the way. Which again, we have 150 something games left to go. It doesn't sound like much, but it actually is. So, yeah, and I've always talked about, and this applies more later in the season. Like it's not just that it's not just they have to play four and a half games better than the Astros. They have to do that and play three and a half better games than the Angels. You know what I mean? Like every team in front of you, you have to be better than. Right. That's that's exactly right. And I mean, it could happen. I mean, look, we've seen weird things happen. Coins do come up heads over and over and over again, and they could reel off a 10-game winning streak, and then this conversation will sound silly. And teams have had even longer winning streaks than that. It's just, it's hard nowadays. It's particularly hard, and we saw this just last night as we're talking, when the A's played the Dodgers and got their first win. They got that first win in part because of the runner on second base rule, the phantom runner, the uh, the God-given extra life, whatever you want to call it, that we're doing right now. It's and a good rule, Stephen. I don't know. I, don't I know. Like I, you're, you're a historian. You romanticize this game too much. <laughs> well, wait a minute. You are the guy. I, I don't know if you've done this lately, but you... <laughs> you're bringing are, up from a decade ago. I'm ready. No. I mean, I'm sure you've done it more recently than that. You're the weird baseball guy. 
you you are the one who who roots as much as I do for the twenty nine inning game that ends at five a.m. I'm willing to sacrifice that for 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 what we get have now. I, I think it's a good rule. I think the most important. I just it it's it's a health thing for me. Like it saves arms. Um, it's but we dangerous. have fifteen it's man dangerous. pitching staffs. It's dangerous to play that many innings at a certain point. And 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 I think you know. And I, I've I've said this before about why I like this rule. Um, Baseball is a game of stress. Um, that's what makes it exciting. It's a, it's a game where tension is created. That's why you like baseball. Um, extra innings are tension, and putting a guy in second creates immediate extra tension, and I think it makes for a more entertaining product. But it, it makes the ending seem kind of random and unearned. I, I, it's not random. you got to get a hit. you got to get the dude in. Look, look at the NFL. The NFL for a long time. No. <laughs> well <laughs> don't look at the nfl listen to my analogy yes. my, my analogy is for a long time when you went to overtime in the nfl the first team to score would win and so the team that won the kickoff won a lot because you could just kick a field goal and the game was over so you won you won the toss you went a few yards you kicked the field goal because now kickers can kick half the field just like every reliever can throw 98 and the game was over so now if you score a touchdown, it's over. But if you score a field goal, the other team gets the ball back. Everybody gets a turn. And I realize everyone gets a runner on second in this right, scenario, Right, everyone gets a runner on second. Yeah, but it's still... I mean, you should, I mean the on-base percentage is like the stat. Like, we should... It's a huge thing. You know what the run expectancy is with a runner on, on second and no outs. It's like one point something. So it's a huge gift. Put them on first, at least. But it's so... You know, opening day, Brewers, Twins, goes to extras. Uh, twins get their guy in second. Brewers bring in Josh Hader, and he strikes out the side um, while also showing more velocity than he ever had in the past, which was terrifying. He touched 100. <laughs> and that's the most exciting half inning I've seen this year. Right, but not everybody has Josh Hader. No, I'm saying, but that you know, that because of the tension of the guy in second, and you can't get, you know, you you really need to get away from contact. Contact's bad. Um, you need to keep that dude standing at second. That inning was the most exciting inning of the year so far. I think that half inning, and it was, and half of that is because it started with a guy in second. I guess, but I mean, in this era, couldn't anybody jack the ball out of the park too? I mean, Hater gives up. Devin Williams yeah, gave they, up a home run last night, and he yeah, was unhittable. Yeah, but they didn't. You know, but they didn't. You know, that's why the inning was so good. And, I mean, obviously they went to extras in Chicago yesterday, too. I, I, that was a good game. I watched that game, or at least the end of that game. Did you um, see the Jock Peterson home run off of Williams? I did. That one, it was kind of fascinating because the airbender, which I still think is kind of a screwball, it didn't bend quite as much as uh, he meant it to, and I think it, it caught too much of, of sort of the inside corner to a lefty hitter, which is, is the sweet spot. Which is the turbo zone, yeah. Yeah, and it, it went a long way. And in the dugout, Peterson was handed a waffle maker, which I thought was just the, the most awesome thing. Ever. I still don't get the reference. What did, do you know that that is? I saw it and I was like, that's funny. And, and of course, Jake, <laughs> of course, Jake Marisnik somehow involved. So, yeah, I get it. But like, what, what's the reference? It's an Ian Happ thing, apparently, that goes to or goes back to Tommy LaStella being on the team and that they talked about they, they sort of invented a slang term for hitting a ball hard, which was waffling it. <laughs> and so by extension, they said, well, we ought to have a waffle maker in the dugout. 
So they brought it in, and it's not clear. Peterson did not know whether he got to keep the waffle maker or he <laughs> if he won it like a real like he's. Thanks for being a guest on the pregame show, Jock. Prize is a waffle maker. Well, see, I think it's cooler if it's that, but it also might be like the Stanley Cup, where you get to have it for a while, but then you have to give it to the next guy. Gotcha. So, but I, I just it seems so random. I'd almost rather not know the story, like because tomorrow. You know, uh, uh, Anthony Rizzo could hit a home run and he could get a blender and it could just go on from there. <laughs> it's a random kitchen appliances for bombs. <laughs> it's like opening a checking account. <laughs> so uh, we talked about the hot stars. I want to talk about the Reds right now. And, and like you said, the Reds are five and one. They've also um, done a little beating up of teams that, frankly, they should beat up. Right. Right. But beyond just the as as good as they've been. Uh, again, against really bad teams, they're suddenly kind of appointment television. They're a lot of fun to watch, uh, and it's and it's because you know I and they're and they're openly admitting it. They're just kind of playing with swag, like they're just showing up. And you know, you got you know Nick Castellanos getting hit, offering the ball back to the pitcher, which was hysterical, and then um, the team overreacting about him getting excited by sliding into home. Uh, I mean, they're sitting here right now with a team OPS over a thousand. Obviously, that's not going to last, and that's my cat. And um, but I, I think this team's ex- suddenly like I was like, yeah, the Reds, whatever. They're 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 one of those teams that's kind of good and and could win the Central because that division's a mess. And I you know I think I think the Brewers and Cardinals are kind of a step ahead of the Reds and the Cubs. But nonetheless, like they're scoring a million runs. They're they're, they're playing with 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 I don't know how to put it with with clear energy in the sense that like you can watch you can see the energy when you watch them as a fan you know what I mean I do there's an energy and intensity and a, and and they, they you know they wear their emotions on their sleeve and I just think it's a lot of fun to watch and I, I guess my question is like does that does that I think it does actually like serve them well in terms of helping them win baseball games I think it does especially and and this is kind of the the, the magic part of, of baseball and I'm using magic for just soft stuff right if it's the it's the to talk about those 73 Mets again it's the tug McGraw you gotta believe which started out as being sarcastic that's my favorite part that the the team president came into the dugout uh, I'm sorry the clubhouse and was like you guys can still win this thing if you'll just have confidence in yourself and McGraw thought that was such bullshit that he started with yeah you gotta believe it was satire but right. it became for the fans and and then for the team, it became a real thing. And I, I would like it to be true. Like one of the small sample things that I would really like to believe, and there are a couple of guys like this on the Reds, right? Tyler Naquin and Jeff Hoffman. Naquin, who's been more of a NyQuil, right, was the 15th <laughs> overall pick in 2012. That is a really great first round, by the way. But yes. he went one pick before Lucas Giolito two picks before Corey Seager, seven before Marcus Stroman. And I, I realize that's with the benefit of hindsight. It was Carlos Correa at the top of that draft, by the way, But and as I'm sure you know. But it seemed like a blown pick, and his minor league stats were kind of, you know, all right, Like, but still had that fourth outfielder feel to them. 
you know, and you you buy a fourth outfield car and it has that fourth outfield smell. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he got hurt a lot too. I mean, the Cleveland really wanted to give him a job on a number of number of occasions. He just couldn't hold it. Well, now through six games, he's slugging nine fifty and leading the universe in home runs with four. And I would really like to believe because we do see this happen sometimes that a player changes environments and somebody says, "No, no, lift your hands up two inches." And then right, right. suddenly they turn into Babe Ruth, and it never lasts, or it almost never lasts. And the the other guy I wanted to talk about in this regard, and it's just one start, but Jeff Hoffman, and I believe this a little bit more, even though it's one start, because Jeff Jeff Hoffman, another first round pick of the Blue Jays, right in 2014, he gets traded to the Rockies, which means essentially you've been deselected by God. And over the last what, four or five years that he's been with the team, he's been basically like a historically bad pitcher. He has just been, even adjusting for context, just been battered. And he wasn't even going to be in the Reds rotation, but someone got hurt, so he got uh, pushed up uh, uh, out of the bullpen, and he did have this one good five-inning start. Five innings, one run, six strikeouts, no walks. And it's nothing. It's nothing to believe in. But I would, again, like to feel like, hey, you take the kid out of... Of he's thirty now, I think twenty eight. Yeah, but yeah, but you take him out of Colorado, you put him in a in a more beneficial environment, and hey, also someone says as uh, right, as the, teams do, play up play up the spin rate on your slider or whatever, and suddenly you're good. Right, and the Reds are very database with their pitching, and it's quite possible that they did the kind of thing that those teams do, where they go, hey, look, these are your best pitches, throw those instead. These are your best locations, throw there instead. Right. Um, and you can change everything. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, obviously I worked for the Astros and, and saw the transformation of Garrett Cole and, 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 you know, people, oh, what did they do smart about Garrett Cole? Nothing. They just, <laughs> I mean, it's not like they did any, there was no magic there. It's just like, yeah, you might want to throw your four seamer more than your two seamer. You might want to quit throwing inside as much and work outer edge to guys and boom, he's a monster, right? Can, can I say, I, I don't, and, and feel free to cut this if this is, is revealing revealing <laughs> too fine, much. Fine. I can't remember the exact chronology of this conversation. Like, I'm not saying that you and I having a, a private conversation was equivalent to tampering. But somewhere, I think, before the Astros signed Cole or acquired Cole, you and I had a conversation about him. And... I said something like that he was still with the Pirates, and I said, yeah, great stuff, but hasn't necessarily lived up to what people projected for him. And you said, if we get him, he's going to be that guy. And I said, how do you know? I don't know if I said it that snottily, but I said, well, how do you know? And he said, you said, we know exactly what to do. And then, as you just said, they did it. And I, I think it's easier to say that, too. And one of the things I was going to say is, and and you don't have to name names, but we know these guys exist, that if you did go to, say, a Jeff Hoffman and say, hey, throw it up here, not down there, and junk this pitch, but but emphasize that pitch, they might say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. And it's, yeah, and it's a huge part of it. And that, that's like the, that's the other thing. And, and, and you know, it's... Uh, when I was with the Astros, our first real success story with, with this kind of thing we're talking about was Colin McHugh, right? Right. So we get Colin McHugh, and he's told, hey, you're a sinker guy. Your sinker is like your fifth best pitch. Let's not throw that. Let's turn it into a four-seamer that rides through the zone, and, and that'll help you set up your breaking ball. You have a really good curveball that you rarely throw. So let's turn you into a four-seam curveball guy. And to Colin's credit, he was like, 
okay, that's great. Yes, okay. And um, I think what really helped the Astros turn a corner was, uh, in a weird way, Verlander, where, you know, obviously the team traded for Justin Verlander. Justin Verlander was, you know, has, has all sorts of hardware on his on his mantle, right? Justin Verlander could have walked in there and, you know, we could have met with him and said, hey, here's some of the things we want you to do. Here's, you know, how we want you to pitch. And he could have said, fuck you, nerds. And it would have been <laughs> fine, right? Because Justin Verlander, okay, great. Go be Justin Verlander. That dude walked in there and said, I want to see everything you have on me. I want to know everything you have. I want to see all the data. I want to see everything you got. I want to talk. Right, let's do this. And and then it turned into him becoming a bit of an evangelist for it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, you trade for Garrett Cole and it means a lot as opposed to just having a meeting with him with the data people and the pitching coaches. It means a lot where before that happens, Justin Verlander pulls Garrett Cole aside and goes, hey, listen to them. They're really, this, this helped me. They know what they're doing. This will really help. Listen to them. That means far more than the meeting itself in a way. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and that's a mark of intelligence and flexibility. And if you want to go through baseball history, very few pitchers come up at 20 throwing 95 and then at 35 they're they're still throwing 95 without making massive adjustments and the the pitchers who are in the hall of fame based on having these 15 20 year careers do learn and this is a a bit over generalizing or cliche to say they go from throwers to pitchers but there is that they do have to invent new wrinkles they do have to adjust and if you are stubborn and saying, I'm just going to do it the way that I, I've always done it. I'm going to dance with the pitch what brung me. Then you are going to be knocked out of the league at some point because the stuff does decline. Right. And, and, and in some ways, we've talked about this before on the show, like guys need to fail before they're willing to change. Right. Um, the special ones are the ones who are just never satisfied. I'm you willing know. to change every single day. Right. I, I just, am... <laughs> and again, like Justin Verlander, can want to go at, I am Justin goddamn Verlander. Right. I don't want. I, I'm doing what I do, and and honestly, if he did that, would that's fine. <laughs> Great, go, you know. But the fact that he was so open to it and became this person who would like, hey, listen to them. They, 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 they this is going to help you. Um, I've told you my favorite story of this is like the analog version of this, but my my favorite version of this before we had all these tools and it just had to go by observation and maybe videotape was Mike Morgan who got really screwed because he was drafted fourth overall in 1978, I think out of high school, Mm -hmm. and Charlie Finley put him right in the majors. And so he got battered around and went from being a top prospect to a journeyman for like 10 years. And unfortunately, that meant going to a lot of organizations where they were either impatient like the Yankees or didn't really know what they were doing at the time like the Mariners. Finally, he gets to the Dodgers, and I wish I could find this clip, but he, he, the pitching coach at the time said, hey, you're standing on the left side of the rubber, and that means that your curve is breaking out of the strike zone. But if you stand a little more towards the middle, it will break in the strike zone, and then it will be a strike. And he became, for about three, four years, one of the better a pitchers in the game. solid starter. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, and then age, age and injury finally caught up with him at right, that Right. By the time they figured out, he was like 30, right? Right. Exactly. But it was, and that was all it took. And before that, he was a joke. Um. So yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's interesting to watch. It'll be interesting to see how real. I don't mean obviously. I mean, look, we talked about Nick when he's thirty. He's never hit more than fourteen bombs in a minor league season. Um, but you're right. I mean, he was considered probably the best bat in the college class that year of the draft. I think he was the second college player taken. Zunino got taken beforehand, but obviously a a huge 
portion of Zunino's value was the catching. Right. Um, and so it just, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work out. And I don't know, I, I, maybe he'll be okay, but it's, it's, he's 30 years old. We have eight years of evidence saying he's not. It's you know probably, what I, it's probably I, just I, a hot start. Right. And I mean, and Castellanos is very streaky. I did love that. Oh, you dropped this. Uh, this that baseball. it's a great move. Yeah, I I really like that. I, one of the things that 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 I liked also was the decision to prom- promote Jonathan India, another guy whose minor league stats were like kind of eh, like maybe he'll be all right. But of course, right now he's hitting 480, and that again won't last. But it, it's fun while it does. And the other thing is. They got criticized, especially after the first game, because they lost the first game because Eugenio Suarez botched right. a couple of balls being at short. But the thing is, it is cool to have, have good defense. It's important to have good defense. But in an era in which strikeouts and home runs are such a big part of the game, it seems like you can kind of gamble maybe on uh, pushing an extra bat into the lineup because the there are only so many grounders to go go around, and as long as he can kind of field most of them and hit the forty home runs that he's capable of, he hasn't done that yet. He's not it, again. It's only five games, but he's he's what two for eighteen or something like that. I mean, as long as he can carry it offensively, you might come out ahead on that. Yeah, tell it to the Yankees. <laughs> um, I, I yeah, I, I I feel strongly about defense up the middle. Um, I think you can slide guys kind of out of position. At, in the corners and stuff, but I, 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 I can't live with a sub fifty defender at shortstop. It, 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 what they're doing with Suarez reminds me. Let's let's get historical again, Stephen. Not that I could ever approach you here, but it reminds me of the late eighties Mets and Howard Johnson there. Right, but they only did that. I was going to bring up the same same example because your choice is Kevin Elster, who except for one season with the Rangers, basically couldn't hit. One of the stranger seasons where he just muscled up and hit like thirty home runs. Right, uh, but. They did that. This was a Davy Johnson thing when Sid Fernandez pitched. And mm-hmm. Sid Fernandez was the most extreme fly ball pitcher of his day. With, with he, also one of the best strikeout rates in the year. Yes. So he actually had whole games without grounders. Just like Tommy John would occasionally, at the opposite end of the spectrum, have whole games without fly balls. Right. And, and there was one game that Don Mattingly had like 26 putouts or something. It it tied a record that's been been tied many, many times. There were just no balls that went up. Well, with Fernandez, they either all stayed at home plate, they were pop-ups, or they were fly balls to the outfield. And so I guess, you know, Davey Johnson figured, why do I need a shortstop that day? I barely need an infield that day. So they would they would get an extra bat in at third base and push Howard Johnson, who wasn't a great glove anywhere, but, you know, playable at third, and they'd push him over to short, and he wouldn't see a ball all day. He could have read a book out there. <laughs> um, let's get back to India for a second and, and, and change the subject, but revolve it around India. Um, we've seen more of this uh, in the last you know, 12 plus months, a, a good portion of what we saw of, of this thing I'm about to talk about uh, happened in 2020 because of uh, the strangeness of 2020 and, and a lot of COVID issues. Um, but we're suddenly seeing a lot of guys come up who uh, have not kind of completed, if you will, the standard minor league graduation process. Right. Apprenticeship. Yeah. They haven't done the whole gamut that you normally get. And they are, uh, I'm making uh, quote marks right now with my hands, which is great to do for a podcast. They are rushed. And um, 
and a lot of them surprisingly held their own. And I, it, it's really made me rethink some of the things about, you know, how how much time guys need in the minors. And, you know, I saw this up close last year uh, with the Houston Astros where the, the bullpen was absolutely decimated. At one point there were, I think, seven guys in that bullpen who had who entered the year with, with zero major league service time. Um, and none of them were guys that, you know, anyone, you know, in March before um, the pandemic thought were necessarily going to be ready. Um, and a lot of them held their own. They all had issues. You know, they all, in the usual issues with the relievers, you know, command issues, control issues, consistency issues. But, you know, the stuff itself was good enough to play, and often it did. Um, and we've seen, you know, this happen with position players. And, like, I understand Mariners fans are super excited about Jared Kelnick. He also has, you know, a month and a half in double A. Um, Royals fans are super excited about Bobby Witt, who, um, you know, really. I don't even want to say probably, but a solid chance of getting to the big leagues this year, despite the fact that his pro career is, you know, like 30, 40 games in the Arizona league. Um, You know, I, 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 are we seeing a change in this? Um, Is it a good thing? And then, you know, my, my deeper question that we probably shouldn't get to you is just like, how will, will the new CBA make this? I don't know. I don't want to say easier, but a more, I think teams will be more open to doing just because of the way service time works. First of all, the the thing with the Astros that you alluded to was really one of my favorite stories from last year. And one of the kind of great rebuilding on the fly stories that we've seen in a long time that, that this team that just had its pitching staff wiped off the board, basically between injuries to guys like Verlander and to the bullpen just invent a new pitching staff and still make the playoffs. And and suddenly, you know, you're in the ALCS with Ryan Presley and uh, and Christian Javier and Andre Scrub. The no offense to Andre Scrub, but that is that is a great name, a great baseball name. Blake yeah. Taylor. Uh, I mean, it it really was kind of amazing that you can do that. And and I suspect that as we talk about this, that that. Uh, what we're going to find is that it's situational, right? And different for position players than pitchers. And, and this is what I mean. Like, I think that there is a school of thought that has said that pitchers, all you're really doing after a certain point is running pitches off their arm. You're, you're pushing, you're pushing the time towards when they get hurt. And I, I thought it was really interesting that this week, uh, the uh, former BP intern, uh, Heim Bloom, was saying with the Red Sox, like, yeah, we want Tanner Houck to uh, to go down and work on a third pitch because we we think he he needs to to uh, to have something more to offer to lefties. And he's been really effective so far. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm not saying again, that's all small sample stuff, too. Uh, also, the Red Sox do not have an overabundance of pitchers at that level. So it's a weird decision overall, but it, it's just sort of looking a gift horse in, in the mouth to me. Whereas with hitters, and we could talk about Andrew Vaughn too, right, who's jumped up from high A, or yeah. Kyle Isbell, who really, I don't know how you feel about this or if you've even bothered to formulate an opinion, but Kyle Isbell now leads the league in eyebrow game. He just has fantastic eyebrows. He has defeated Freddie Freeman, who has been my <laughs> reigning eyebrow guy for 10 years now. I didn't realize you were an eyebrow person. 
I just the guys who really look like they've had them delineated by a comic book artist and like a good one. <laughs> Freddie Freeman had that like golden age Captain Marvel. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the Shazam guy going when he first came up and uh, and had a name that corresponds to that to that character too or that series and Isbell's just look like they they've been drawn in India ink. But Isbell is another guy who's who's jumped up and it's only been a few games but he's he's been fi- fine so far. But I feel like in terms of developing the the kind of mental library that leads to pitch recognition and thereby leads to success in in the major leagues, maybe that is a question of more reps in the in the minors. And again, I think everyone's different. Obviously, uh, uh, a Juan Soto could come up as a teenager, and and there have been sort of outliers like that throughout the history of the game, Junior Griffey, and so forth. But most maybe. They are going to get fooled by the difficult off-speed stuff if they come up without having that extra 200 to 400 plate appearances. Mm. And it, yeah, it's weird, and, and it just it's it's like with the pitchers, they can, you know, even though a guy like Inoli Paredes needs a lot of refinement in terms of consistency and command, he also has a, a shot at just kind of getting on the mound and out stuffing anybody. Right. Um. And, and, you know, there are pitchers in A-ball who can, if things are right, can show up and outstuff you. It's just it's just about that experience and that pitch ability kind of refining location that, that is going to kind of define their, their long-term future. But can they do it now? I guess I'm more convinced than I was 12 months ago. I think it would be different if we were talking about starting pitchers in the old sense. If you were going to take that kid from, from high A and say you have to get through the order three times in order to qualify for a win, that's the way we do things around here. Then they would probably get exposed, and that that lack of of ability to consistently locate would probably burn them just because of the overexposure. But in three batters, you know, you just uh, you go with the the hot stuff. Excuse me, the hard stuff. We're not talking about brats or anything with the the hard <laughs> stuff, and uh, and you burn it by them, and and you don't you don't go to that second or third pitch. So. Uh... How you know we we saw the one issue. Obviously, you look at the standings, and what you know one of the things that kind of grabs your eye real quick is just the fact that you know the Mets and the Nationals are both one and two because they had the COVID issue. Right. Um, so we know nothing about that right now. But um, you know things are happening in a good way. You know, I have a shot in me. I'm getting another one in 20 days. Yeah, I'm um, done. You're done. You're yeah. good to go. Are I you just, two weeks past your second one, or did I you do the am one done? About. Uh, almost, not quite two weeks past the second one. So you're, you're ready to go. I'm ready. Like a street sign. The problem is I've got nobody else around me who has had this, though. So, I mean, if, if somebody wants a donut, I can run out and get it, but there's, there's not, there's not any place I can be yet soon though. Soon. So I'm looking forward to that. So I, you know, we've seen this, um, you know, I just read the note that, that Chris better, the, the Tigers pitching coach has been cleared. Um, we've had a couple, you know, isolated cases here and there. Uh, is this? Do you feel like this is going to be like an issue for the first half of the year? Like we're going to see more of this. There's going to be some things here and there that that, that cause us to lose games and cause teams to uh, have significantly altered rosters. Yeah, it might, particularly because we've seen that some players, like uh, some percentage of of all Americans, is a little shy of the vaccine. And there are some few small reasons to have some trepidation about it. Uh, on the other hand, the AstraZeneca vaccine is not being used in the United States. So, I mean, on the whole, even with that, the the benefits of it, both to yourself and to society, are so great that 
it's something that the vast, vast majority of people, unless they have a special reason not to do it, need to do. So, yeah, I think so, because what we're seeing from the CDC and other medical sources is that that more contagious British variant is still out there. And there are many states, including New York, New Jersey, where I am right now, Michigan. Having minor surge. Chicago's having one, too. Having yeah. Having little and, surges. Right. And the, you know, the, the thing that I feel like, I, and this, this is not squarely on baseball, Kevin, but that really kind of bugs me is that, I mean, we don't have to go over the last, like, you know, year plus and, and the kind of messaging that people were getting from the previous administration or the previous CDC or even from this one. But you read more and more about long haul COVID and people who are going to have after effects for a long time that are still not well understood, but it seems like definitively exist. We haven't really told people about that. So those that are not getting vaccinated or those who are like, well, I'll get it and I'm young and I'm healthy and I'll get over it. Well, there are going to be more people like that now because, and this is sort of sad, but one suspects that COVID has already killed a lot of the vulnerable, older, or immune deficient people that it was going to kill. And now the people who catch it are going to be somewhat healthier. And if they have uh, a partial vaccine in them or, or what have you, then yeah, they're going to get a lighter case. It's not going to put them in the hospital. It's not going to kill them. But it could hang out for a while. Right. And I I know, I know this like five years from now, we're going to be watching the news one night and we're going to see a congressional hearing with somebody saying, uh, hi, my, my name is, is Caitlin and uh, I went to a, a bar in Vail, Colorado because no one told me they said I was young and I wasn't at risk. I didn't realize that even if it wouldn't kill me, I would have a brain fog for the rest of my life. I can't remember where I left my car keys. I can't hold a job. Please, uh, me and people like me need some kind of bailout from the federal government. And it's not the money that bugs me. It's that it was knowable ahead mm -hmm. of time. And and all of that is to just go to say we're still in this. And if we do have this more contagious variant out there, then inevitably players moving around as they do, as they did last year, even when, when they weren't trying to violate the protocols, they're going to run into it. And it does seem likely that we are, again, going to be disrupted in the way we've been disrupted just this week. I mean, it didn't seem like the Nationals did anything really wrong, did it? No, I don't think so. They just uh, got, got on a plane. It just happened. Yeah. Travel's dangerous these days. Um, and, you know, it, it's such a funny thing. Like you see, I know the Mets are having some issues getting over that 85% bump that you need to get over to loosen your restrictions on the road. Um, which is turned out to be a really smart move by MLB in the sense that I think it, that it does teams hated traveling last year. And to say, if you get there, you can lose some restrictions. I think it's a huge incentive for teams to, to get over that 85% mark. But there's a, you know, it's talked about how the, someone, I think it was the Mets and the quote was many players are still educating themselves. And it's just like, it's been a year, dude. Like, what are you waiting for? And, and I look, big league clubhouses are filled with, with, um, some weird people and, and there's a lot of weird like conspiracy the queue is big in baseball clubhouses there's a lot of weird stuff going on and, and it doesn't surprise me they're having problems and the other thing is like a lot of baseball players like a lot of professional athletes period just see themselves as immortal um and it just doesn't apply to them and so it it's it, it, i think it is going to be a problem and i hope we can you know do something about it. I, I wish there was a way um and maybe it's too much for just major league baseball just to say and, and i think the union should do the same like if you're gonna play, you gotta get it. Period. 
Have like, you have you gotten no a shot yet? Have you? I got, yeah, I got my first shot a week ago. So uh, first shot you, of Moderna. Were you at all nervous? Uh, I was no, not at all. I was nervous about. I'm not crazy about getting shots, <laughs> um, but like you know anything else. I mean, it's and, you know it's just like you know whatever. You know, Bill Gates put a microchip in every vaccine. I'm like you, you know, so you can track you. I'm like, yeah, you're 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 tweeting that from an iPhone. Think about it. <laughs> um, but you know, I had no, I have no concerns about getting the vaccine at all, and I was thrilled to get it. It was, I had the, it was, I was so happy to have a sore arm for a couple of days. Yeah, I was, I was a little afraid because, I mean, I'm not sure that there's anyone out there who likes having a cold, but just emotionally. I hate being congested. I hate that even even not being in mortal fear of my life. It's not like having chest pains or anything, but I just hate that that going through boxes of tissues and and yeah. uh, and all that stuff feeling. So a lot of people said, "Hey, when you get the second shot, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to have a little preview of what the actual disease is like. Hey, you can just sleep it off." One of our our uh, our mutual friends Mike Farron got the shot way ahead of me, and he was like, "Yeah, me and me and my wife were pretty affected by it. Uh, we just took a long nap, and then we were okay, uh, but they felt pretty bad for a while. And so I was dreading that second shot, not enough to stop me from getting it, but yeah, I was I was a little nervous. I was a little nervous about about the the rare people who basically get it and just explode, which right. are like one in a, in a million. But in the end, you kind of have to because the the alternative is is worse, but but this is what I mean about long COVID and and that that question of, of like blood clotting, which is still even though uh, it hasn't really been connected with the vaccines we're using here, has been kind of correlated with the the one they're using in Europe. But even then, they're saying like it's such a rare side effect and it can be managed if you're you're aware of it, you should get it. And that's a process of education that hasn't really happened here, and I guess it hasn't happened for ball players either. So you left me hanging. How how was your second shot? How was, was the next? Fine. You how know was what? the next day? I I took Mr. Farron's advice. So I got the shot. I I slept for like an hour, hour and a half. When I got up, I had a, a pretty bad headache, and uh, it could be coincidental. I I'm one of those people. I'm pretty lucky. I don't get headaches very often at all. So I I don't think it was right. accidental. And um, what what some people will know about me, and you know about me, but I. Uh, I'm blind in one eye and that eye has been very, very tortured by doctors. And so there's a lot of scar tissue in it. And that eye was killing me. Really? And, and I think what that is, there's just not a lot of play in that eye. So if I, I had uh, an inflammatory response, I think what it was was it was it was trying to, I don't know if expand or contract or what, but basically the, the scar tissue didn't want to give. So I was having a lot of pain, but that lasted for about an hour. And then I was mm-hmm. okay, and I had no other symptoms, so you know it was it was fine. I I I found that that all the the horror stories and I, and I, I mentioned Mike. Mike didn't frighten me or anything, but a lot of people said similar things like you're going to have a bad afternoon. Like be prepared to take the rest of the day off, and I I didn't. I didn't that, really. Yeah, that's it. That's what I've heard because I I'm I'm on the Moderna track, and I've heard the Moderna the second shot is you feel sick for a day. You feel like shit for a day, and I'm ready right. for it. I'm good with that. I'm yeah. fine with that. Well, the trade-off is now you can go back to Applebee's. You yeah. Know? So, not that our, you... our Applebee's closed. <laughs> well, that's probably to your benefit, really. It turned into a Raising Cane's. What is a Raising Cane's? It's chicken fingers. It's all they sell are chicken fingers. So, here's <laughs> here's the thing about living in DeKalb. Let's just, let's just do Tangent City now. Okay. So, here's the thing about living in DeKalb. Um, when new fast food shows up, People lose their fucking minds, and for like to, even a pan in, in, even in a pandemic, 
for like the first two weeks that this raising came, again, like the, the whole menu is like chicken fingers and fries, right? Like there are many options. Like, do you want three or five? Right. That's That's all they do. And <laughs> the line when they first opened necessitated special traffic control. You would have think you would have thought it's a free HD TV with every purchase. Doesn't that seem over specialized? There's there's a a place a chain I had to spend about a month in Mississippi recently, and there's a chain down there and in a few other states called Chicken Salad Chick. All they sell is chicken salad, and if if you don't like chicken salad, sorry, don't come. I mean, and it it just seems like an evolutionary dead end to me. I don't know, but there's not like a soul alive who doesn't like a good chicken finger. <laughs> no, that's true. You know, no one's like, ah, I don't eat chicken fingers. I, I've never met that person. You know what really, this, this, <laughs> this is sort of a tangent on this tangent, but there is a subset of sort of fast casual restaurants, and they're not, they weren't doing that well before the COVID thing, which is probably a good thing, but it is essentially bar food and breasts. And you know what I'm talking about, like Hooters. Sure, the yeah, Hooters, Twin Peaks. Yeah, um, and that's the one I was yeah. going to mention. So up here, we have Hooters and the Tilted Kilt, which is also, yes. I yes. think, also dying off. I was not aware of Twin Peaks until I went down south. And when I, I was like, what is Twin Peaks? And you look it up and you go, oh, come on. That's too on the note. I mean, maybe it's I not. I was so excited the first time I saw Twin Peaks. Because like, oh, this is cool. They're going to have like a log lady there. Like I'll have the, <laughs> right. I'll have the, the log lady appetizer and, the, and, and, you know, the really good, great coffee afterwards. Yeah. Right. Like snacks that you eat out of somebody's severed ear. Mm-hmm. Like that would be great. But the, the wrapped in plastic. Right. Yeah. It, it would it would be like somebody. And I thought someone was going to do this. Took Jackrabbit Slims from Pulp Fiction, the uh, the fifties mm-hmm. restaurant with people dressed as Buddy Holly and and the quote five dollar milkshake. I th- I would like to go to that place, but I I would feel and a be little... served by Steve Buscemi. Yeah, exact. That would be a little intimidating, really. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I maybe he's the greatest guy. Could you imagine being I, sort of uh, uh, served by William Willem Dafoe at a restaurant? I don't I'd know. rather I'd take Buscemi for. I, Buscemi seems like a good dude. Defoe does too. He might be a monster. I don't know. <laughs> They're both great, though. Yeah. So I was a little, I was a little disappointed that it wasn't that, and that it was just so on. The, I mean, why not just call it breasts? <laughs> it's just truth in advertising. Yeah. I mean, I mean, because look, let's admit, you know, one of the 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 seminal moments in my understanding of, of culture. Was when I when I was uh, a teenager, I think a senior or in high school or in my freshman year of college, Basic Instinct came out, and everyone heard who hadn't seen it. This is a sexy, sexy movie, and this is before the internet made that kind of material available to whatever extreme you wanted it. You could find it, and so the sense of prurience, the sense of ooh, we're gonna get something naughty in a public environment, was was very much out there, and I. Did not like that idea. I did not want to go see that. But a friend of mine uh, uh, twisted the arms of a bunch of us and we went to see it. And whenever they did something, Sharon Stone, whoever uh, uh, was exposed or or something, quote, sexy happened, the audience laughed. They laughed really hard. Mm -hmm. And it was because they were embarrassed. They're uncomfortable. Yeah, they all knew that they had come. I'm going to go there to see the nudity. And then it showed up and they... They they felt exposed because, oh, this is what we came to see. But you don't want to be 
you know, it's it's one thing to say like, oh, I will see that. It will be arousing. It will be titillating. And another thing to have 500 people around you when that happens. And so I realized like, let's let's if we were all honest in that moment, we would admit what we were about and that embarrassment would go. But then so would the need for that kind of film. And so I, I think if with that kind of restaurant, like admit you're not going for the onion rings. And then again, you it, it might morph into something else else or, or it might die. But the experience would be more dignified for everyone. So we've gotten very far off the beaten path. <laughs> we'll take a break. We'll get back on the beaten path with uh, Bradford William Davis talking about uh, the All-Star Game moving. And then we'll come back and, and do emails and all sorts of other stuff. So stick around. Welcome back to the podcast, special guest time. Our special guest is a columnist for the New York Daily News. His work has been found in a million other places, MSN, NBC News, the Toronto Star, Baltimore Sun, HBO, Yahoo, IndieWire. We could go on and on. <laughs> he is the vaccine poppy on Twitter. And joining us from his palatial estate in Harlem, it's Bradford Willie Davis. Bradford, how are you? Hey, uh, I'm all right. My palatial estate is a... 850 foot square foot apartment. So uh, just to be clear, everybody, I, I am not caking off this journalism game just yet. That's, um, that's palatial in New York. <laughs> I got a good deal. Like, like seriously, otherwise otherwise I would be, you know, in uh, in Yonkers or the Bronx or something like that. But yeah, man, um, thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. And you know, we talked before we started recording. We have a, another thing I want to talk to you about, but I want to start with the, the main reason we're having you on, which is to talk about uh, the big news in baseball of the week, which was... You know, we don't need to go over what happened. If you're listening to this show and you're pretty hardcore, um, you know the All-Star game got pulled out of Atlanta. It is now in Colorado. Uh, so I kind of want to ask you personally, like, were you surprised by the decision itself? <sighs> I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> like, there, there, in, there is a sense 
I'll, 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 I'll explain why, and you're gonna, I'm gonna be very mixed in my opinions and feelings about this throughout the entire time we talk about it, but. Sure. Um, but I'll explain why I was, I, why I was surprised and not surprised first. I guess the surprise came from Major League Baseball taking a stand, which is something they're not really, you know, they're not really known to do, you know, mm-hmm. on any sort of like, you know, social value. Um, and, uh, you know, besides, like, Jackie Robinson used to work here. Like, <laughs> that's, that's, that, that is, like, you know, I, obviously I'm collapsing a lot of history, but, like, you know, that often, you know, is what Major League Baseball seems to pride itself on, you know. So, um, so, you know, um, and one, one that opened up this, itself up to a lot of scrutiny, clearly, they made, uh, all the, uh, all the best people <laughs> in politics really, really, uh, unhappy with them, like, uh. Like Governor Brian Kemp, who uh, you know Georgia's governor, who you know helped force through this voter suppression bill, and uh, you know uh, a number of other people. Um, this guy's new. Uh, Greg Abbott over in uh, was a governor of Texas was supposed to throw the first pitch um, at the Rangers game, uh, Rangers home opener, and he declined like you know earlier that day um, because of you know woke cancel culture or you know whatever whatever buzzword that has been appropriated <laughs> out of like black Twitter into right right wing grievance politics <laughs> um <laughs> so um you know all, all that kind of stuff is like um is interesting and and personally you know um as someone who would like to be able to vote in every state <laughs> no matter where i live um good right but um on the other hand um i think that the winds of change kind of force Major League Baseball into a value statement mm-hmm. um, that isn't terribly surprising. I mean, think about, like, if you remember your inbox in, like, May or June, every single brand that you have ever consumed lets you know that Black Lives Matter, right? Like, like you know, like like Skittles is probably like you know we haven't tasted all rainbows in our past. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like uh, every every single coffee shop you ordered a croissant and a you know skin milk cortado, and they were letting you know, you know, <laughs> um, every every identity that they support. You know, um, but something had happened due to the you know to do the hor- horrific killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. Um, all kind of grouped in that same, roughly speaking, same season, right? Um, and uh, and the outrage that it provoked, you know, leading into protests all around the country, all around the world, really, right? That wisened brands to being like, okay, th- you know, we, we never want to appear racist, but this is how we need to not appear racist now, right? The bar has been raised in that sense, um, so that people will feel, you know, will feel like they are ethical consumers when they purchase us. So Major League Baseball is a brand too, you know. Yeah. And uh, and they fairly late <laughs> um, to the game relative to again every other place that emailed you, <laughs> um, you know, release a statement um, as you know from from the league office saying that you know we that Black Lives Matter right um, and and mourning the you know senseless killings of George Floyd and and uh, et cetera you know um, so uh, you know that I again I don't really um, I don't necessarily believe that it came from uh the heart <laughs> but it came right and so you know and and uh and I, and I think that similarly with this voter thing you know with this voter thing 
there is um, a higher expectation out of a brand to align itself, you know, um, with uh, whatever is understood in a broad sense as good, right? Um, even even if there are loud dissonance, you know, that that uh, oppose it, like you know that, and I, I think that I think that's kind of where baseball was at at that point, major league baseball. So uh, let me follow that up, because obviously there was a lot of this. So this happened. They did it. They pulled the All Star Game out of Georgia. They they specifically, you know, said that you know it was in reaction to the voter suppression bill that got passed there. I understand like a cynicism as to why it happened. Um, I mean, they, it was it was basically because corporate interests were not going to be on their side here. Um, I get that, and I agree with it, and I understand where the cynicism comes from. But in the end, even if the the reasoning is poor, did baseball do a good thing here? Again, my ambivalence, man. Um, <laughs> so it's funny. I was arguing with uh, shout out to Clinton Yates over at uh, ESPN in the field. Oh, he's great. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, but like we were texting about it, like you know, uh, or, and, and talking on the phone. And you just the other night about it, but like you know, um, we, but we, you know, we, yeah, it was a healthy debate. Uh, uh, but like we were just kind of kind of like wondering, like like is this is this a good is this a good thing unequivocally? And, uh, you know, Yates was more like, yeah, definitely, right? As were, as were a lot of people, right? And I completely understand where they're coming from. Again, they made all of the best people in politics very, very upset. You know, so um, that is a appears to be a clue, an indicator. You know, my dad and I also had a similar debate, you know, where he's like, um, like, it's good, you know, even just getting it, getting rhetorically, like a, a setting the standard, you know? Right. That this yeah. very, very large institution that means a lot to a whole lot of people, um, the, you know, um, like wants you to be able to vote, right? Um, no matter who you are. So, um, that's, uh, so, you know, so, so that's, I think, I think there is, you know, some representative value in that. Right. Plus again, pissing off, you know, the right people. Um, however, the thing that really got me was the way that two prominent voices and and I have not again, extensively excavated every single on the ground sort of like opinion about this mm-hmm. but two very prominent voices hedged their their praise for major league baseball one was stacy abrams yeah the former uh you know um candidate for georgia governor's seat um who, who lost to brian kemp due likely to suppression yeah. you know um yeah so yeah got robbed right and then um and then there was uh rafael warnock who won a senate seat Due to the response that Stacey Abrams had to losing the governor, you know, losing that that election by activating voters in Georgia, you know, predominantly in underreach, underserved areas that were being suppressed um, already. Um, and so Raphael, War- you know, Raphael Warnock, you know, is a first term senator, senator now because of Stacey Abrams' work. And both of them hedged their their praise for Major League Baseball, and they, you know, and they said, well, like, we basically, we're glad that Major League Baseball took a stand and showed. You know, their values on the, on the right side, but we wish they had not gone about it that way. Right. So like that. And and to me, that just, you know, that because I from from my vantage point, right, it makes me feel good as, you know, an East Coast media, mainstream media, you know, <laughs> liberal elite. Right. Like to be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, I'm glad that they you know, stuck it to them. But then to see people who have a responsibility to Jordans or see themselves as having that, you know. Uh, Warnock directly, right, as a senator, but then Stacey Abrams as a, still as a, as a high, high, very influential, important political, fe- you know, leader in that state. Like, um, for, you know, and again, and again, people who are, you know, who are direct recipients of, you know, expanded voter access or directly punished from, you know, failure to, to, to um, 
or barriers, you know, in uh, place, you know, against um, poorer and black or voters, black voters, right? Um, for them to be like, you know, to not be rah rah about this, make me, I, th- I think should at least provide some pause and some question, you know, question as to like, you know, is Major League Baseball doing this as a means of, again, promoting the brand? And because of that, did, you know, did, did they fail to perhaps consider? You know every, you know every, you know kind of the 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 holistic impact of this, and and whether it's a net positive, you know, um, yeah. or not. So and so I don't know. I I I I always try and submit that because again, I don't stand to suffer from this, but there are people that do. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's there's, there's economic loss here and their job loss here because of this. Um, my argument would be that you know, and Stacey Abrams has done nothing short of heroic work in, in terms of, of voting rights in the state of Georgia. Um, but both both her and Warnock are politicians in Georgia. They answer to voters in Georgia. They they are, no matter what you think of, of their stands on issues, they're still political people. They I don't know if it's in their best interest in terms of their political future to say, great, we lost the All-Star game. And I think that might play a role in what they're saying and how they're saying it. I think that's, and I think that's actually very, really good pushback, honestly, like, because, because, you know, this is all, this is all politics to some degree, even among the people that, you know, I prefer, let's say, right. Like it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a possible, you know, it's impossible to know, to know all the motivations here, but like, but that could be, a, that could very well be a likely one. But I also say, also say that it may not be necessarily a bad, you know, <laughs> likely one. Again, they are, they represent their constituents mm-hmm. and their constituents, you know, again, for, for Warnock and Abrams are not, you know, white folks who don't, you know, I shouldn't say, look, their constituents are still those people, but, 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 um. But uh, the people, the people, the people that they depend on, that that they they expect to have, you know, to 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 receive votes from, you know, should they run for office again, right? Are not white people who don't want their black neighbors to vote, you know? Who talk talk about cancel? Yeah, 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 cancel, you know, or 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 want want a a universal ID, or or, you know, or to to be able to like, I don't know, you know, really fill in the blank, right? Right. Um. So like, so 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 they're you know so so they so they know they know where the they know. Where their bread and butter is, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and yet, the, and so, the, so, the, so there's, so they probably see themselves primarily as speaking for, you know, um, for black, black voters in the state of Georgia, and yet for them to still say it would be like, you know, I'm not crazy about this, um, is, I mean, again, paraphrasing, right? Um, it, it, you know, t- to me seems to, uh, it, I, I think again, I, I just, I just think it should, it should complicate the narrative. At least, at least be a cause for, at least be a cause for pause. I think right. you can you can hear the campaign commercials already, especially if Stacey Abrams runs for governor again, right? Because the All Star Game, the economic damage is pretty marginal, according to all rep- reputable sources. But right. people think that it's huge, and so they're going to say when Major League Baseball pulled the All Star Game out of Georgia, it cost Georgia workers one hundred million dollars, and Stacey Abrams is fine with that. And that, that if you're if you're thinking that it's marginal votes that is going to get you finally into that governor's seat, then you understand why she and Warnock have to to walk a careful line. And I, I think also to to go back to something you were talking about before, the idea that Major League Baseball cares about voting rights in Georgia seems kind of a stretch to me. And the the 
response that they had initially to George Floyd, which was slower than every other sport, they took nine days to say anything at all. And if you watched the games, as I'm sure you did, they had, when they finally did react, they had the Black Lives Matter stuff up for what seemed like a day. And then the spots that it occupied were given over to all the usual people, lumber liquidators and 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 carpet outlets and things like that, because that's that's profitable real estate for them, not a place to be preaching. They did the minimum that they could do, and then they got out of the way because they I don't think that they they really have a position on this. They just want to make their money and get out. Yeah, and uh, I think that's a that's a I think that's a good uh, comparison and why and why I brought that up earlier in our conversation, you know, about the Black Lives Matter, you know, Major League Baseball sort of Black Lives Matter embrace and um, the uh, the limits of um, putting out a statement, you know, in support of something. Given that again, the economic let's say let's 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 assume the economic costs are are, are marginal in either in either direction, so it's really all rhetorical. You know, um, I don't see, you know, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives being susta- substantially mattering more, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. 10 months out from, from, from that. You know, I I see Major League Baseball, you know, pumping in a tiny fraction of, you know, their operating budget towards things like the Players Alliance. Uh, um, I see lots of Black Lives Matter warm up tees. Um, but like, you know, but, 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 uh, but I, I think that that can be used to launder, um, all the other evil things happening, you know, <laughs> in, you, you in, can in, say, Hey, we took care, we took care of it. Yeah. Look at the, look at yeah. the t-shirts. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, like to, you know, to, so, so to use, you know, and I, 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 that's what I encourage people to really think about too, with all this stuff is that, is that like, it, you know, is this, a, you know, is this a sleight of hand for all the other active ways Major League Baseball, you know, entities contribute to systemic racism inside the sport and, in, you know, and throughout our country and throughout our globe, you know, like, um, again, consider like the Latin American <laughs> process of, of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of how, of how, you know, talent is, is recruited and brought and brought into the States, you know, um, they are not exactly doing these black Dominican kids any, any favors, you know, <laughs> but, uh, like, um, they, um, so when you think about all, you know, all, all of that, like, like, it, you know, it is, it can't, it, to me, my, my, my pause, my reason for concern is, is like it, you know, can this very low effort statement that just leads to a couple of people blowing hot gas, like Ted Cruz, whatever, right. Um, about, you know, wanting to, uh, what was it, guys? It, it was um, uh, to, uh, remove the antitrust exemption, right? You know, right, right, so right. so stuff like that. So again, people were just being being whined, but like, no, nobody's nobody's canceling Major League Baseball. Like, stop it. You know, <laughs> you're 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 not you're not burning your um Freddie Freeman jersey. Like, get out get out of here. You know, like um, so to um, you know, so so to to to, to use that as you know, to, I I I fear the the using it as, as a decoy that allows people to not really worry or be concerned about like, you know, the many other things that, you know, that are, that are happening. And, and I think Major League Baseball has a pretty, you know, demonstrated tra- track record of, of, of being, of, of, of mar- marginal commitments to good things, uh, promoting that marginal commitment and doing a lot of bad things, um, 
alongside it that uh that that should you know i think reduce your trust in this being um especially good or even effective towards the actual cause which is getting make, ensuring that black people and any person in any you know in any state in the united states has the ability you know ha- have the ability to to freely you know exercise the right to vote you know what i mean like that's that that that's my that is my pushback that is that is my my warning to people who may have a similar like-minded sentiment of you know of, of wanting you know voter access expanded as much as possible mm-hmm. so i'm trying to figure out how to word this right um is you know major league baseball and maybe you know the sports in general like the, of the three major sports and if you're a hockey fan don't send me an email it's it's fourth um <laughs> but of, of you know nba nfl baseball we've we've all seen them some more than others kind of and this, this baseball one is the most recent example kind of due to societal pressures dragged kicking and screaming into making a stand that is on some level political um even though they may have not done it for the right reasons and even though it might not necessarily be the most effective thing and even though it can like you said cover up some other possibility you know some some worse things that are still going on is just this this tiny step in general just a good thing at least it's in the right direction or you know and, and you know it's in a step in the right direction and, and we should and, and you know people should stay vigilant and demand more but it's at least it's moving in the right direction or is even that too optimistic of you yeah i mean <laughs> that's that's the that's the that's the uh million dollar question right like is this you know um does this uh does this step forward um is it worth it right like um is it you know is it is it is it, is it good is it effective is it is it, is it, a, is, it is it truly a step forward and i'm just you know i'm just not certain i think i think it deserves mm-hmm. more, more you know f- further scrutiny um more questions being asked of the league you know of who they consulted with of you know of what their what their you know extended commitment to voter rights you know are i mean and and granted i will say this major league baseball did open up their stadiums you know many of their stadiums for you know um um on election day you know uh they also for a reason programmed the golden glove the the gold glove awards you know during election day too so you know um but uh, you know, they, so it's not—it's not to say that they're all—they're all bad or anything like that. But, um, but like you know, but 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 they're but are they manufacturing a sort of like acceptance or consent, you know, for mm-hmm. the league as a whole through it? Um, that allows them to do, you know to to do things that may be more materially damaging, you know, mm-hmm. than than their than their statement and their pullout, um, is rhetorically demonstrative. That is that you know, I, and that, I think that should always be a question whenever we see you know um, any brand that includes the NBA too, that includes the NFL, you know, despite them having you know far more um, uh, black players, you know, um, and black leadership or whatever like that. Like, um, like is it you know, um, is, is this being is this being used to to, to justify you know, or rather to, to throw throw you out the center of worse things that are happening because there are worse things that are happening. Like right, like right now we can go through like 12 of them. If you want to. So like, um, and, uh, you know, and, and that's, and that's what I, that, that, that's, that's why I, my, where that's where I land. That's, that's where I shouldn't say land rather, but that, but that's what I'm sifting through. Do you ever find as you cover this stuff that, I, I mean, 
sometimes it's funny that people tell us to stick to sports, right? And everything is actually political. There's no way of extricating that. Even just today, people were talking about, uh, or, or over the last few days, like whether the Mets feel like getting vaccinated, which is, is uh, you know, cutting edge technology from 1710, by the way. That's how long vaccines have been around and there's been controversy over them. There, there was a, a Boston journalist who got into uh, such a heated dispute over vaccines that he had to leave town. That was Benjamin Franklin in 1723. So <laughs> it's it's kind of. But do do you ever actually? They think that that we relish this, right? That that we want to be. We're sort of frustrated political reporters. But do you ever just want to say like, can we can can I write about the games in effect? You know, yes and no. I mean, I, there's, there's a lot of joy at times of discovering the game as a game, you know, and that's that uh, like um, I, I really I actually I actually really appreciated that during the postseason um, last year and just kind of being able to, you know, because I'd done a, a whole lot of uh, writing and reporting on how I, I felt, you know, pro sports were handling both uh, the ongoing pandemic and the sudden revival of interest in you know black civil rights causes you know um that happened all during throughout 2020 right um and so to be able to just be like you know uh is this garrett is garrett cole locating his fastball like you know it was like <laughs> genuinely fun you know um but um but you know but i i didn't you know i mean and and, and i i say this with with zero shade to the kind of writer who, that that really does just want to stick to sports, you know, per se, because it's not, it is not, that's not wrong, you know, to 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 desire, you know, covering the game as a game again. Fan readers, please, you know, continue to support, <laughs> um, you know, be, be pro, all, all that, right? Um, just blogs about <laughs> about uh, you know, whose exit velocity is higher or whatever. Like that's that's all. That's that is cool, fun stuff that I read all the time, you know. Um, and it helps my work too, but like um. But, you know, I, um, as far as, like, the journalism reporting side, like, I definitely didn't get into the sport to, like, break something that was, that's going to be in a press release 10 minutes later. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not Jeff Passan. I'm not Ken Rosendahl, you know? Um, but, um, but, like, I think, you know, journalism should always be in the service of, you know, of the public, which means holding, you know, pow- institutions in power and account. And so it's not, like, always, always, like, fun end of the moment you know but like it's rewarding to know that like i spoke the truth you know (laughs) um about something to the best that i could i could you know discern it um rather than i um promoting something for the sake of uh cultivating a source that could again tell me which really pitcher got traded where um, right that like you know that that you know so so that is um so you know i i, I would i would love i would love like, I, I guess i love a, a a idealized utopic utopian world where like you know <laughs> where, where, where you know where there is no racism right and then i wouldn't have to think about it anymore i could i could just be like okay where, you know how is garrett locating his fastball but like that ain't it right like you know the and there are a lot of issues and and, and so um i have i'm one of the few people in in, in the country you know who has sort of a privileged access to ask questions about these things. And so I, I intend to use that to, you know, until they, until they kick me out. Like, um, and I think, and I think I, and I think I owe it to our readers to be able to, to do that, you know? Um, so, uh, that, that, that's, that, that, that is definitely where I stand on, on this stuff. Like I, I love covering the game as a game, but, but like, but there's a game on top of the game to quote, uh, 
High Flying Bird. Great movie, <laughs> by the way. Um, everybody, everybody should watch it. Tons of tons of parallels to everything that happened in the last twelve months. But um, uh, yeah, Netflix. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I um, uh, you know, there, there, there's so much more that intersects and, and it involves baseball and, and and leaks into you know the stuff that happens between you know the baselines. So um, I got yeah, that 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 that's why I um cover the sport the way I do and and uh. I have not gone gr- grown weary yet of, of doing that. So you talked about the game on top of the game. You just got back from Dallas, Texas, where, <laughs> you, where you went to a game that had some things on top of the game. And you uh, attended the Rangers home opener, which was filled with fans. Um, you know, we live so, in a world where, where your stadiums are, you know, 20 to... 30% full in general. Houston opens tonight. They have, they're, they're at 50%. Um, Texas for the opener decided to go 100%. And it was, uh, nothing but screenshots on my Twitter feed of people without masks. Uh, we should say in front, you are vaccinated. And, yeah, you know, uh, I feel, I feel like Kim Kardashian. You know what I mean? Like, remember, remember <laughs> when, remember when Kim had, had that birthday party? And it's like very she, important she to know if, that any, if you say anything that, that involves Kim Kardashian, then you say you remember when I'm just going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, so uh, so so for the folks who are either uh, as extremely online or, you know, or, or, or read the glossy magazines, you know, um, so Kim, uh, who, who, who don't rather, you know, I should say Kim, Kim Kardashian, um, she uh, had a, a 40th birthday party blowout. And she like rented a private island because you know she got money like that. But like, but in but in her tweets announcing it, you know, and, and just like cherishing, you know, how great it was you able to do this in the midst of pandemic and everything. And then she's like, oh, by the way, we all got tested three times, and blah blah blah, you know, like all these sorts of uh, you know um, qualifiers to let you know that like she's safe, doing something safely, as she is implicitly promoting something that's really kind of like selfish, right? <laughs> in that moment, you know. Um, so I feel like that almost when I mentioned, hey, guys, I'm fully vaccinated. That's why I went to this stupid game. <laughs> so long, long way of telling that joke. But yeah, so long. Um, but yeah, I, 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 you know, I got I, if I if I had not gotten both my shots, I would not have uh, done this. But um, but I felt, though, again, like I wanted to um, soak in something that um, was kind of once in a lifetime um, and, you know, in, in, in surreal. You know, I, I live like, like as you as you mentioned at the top of this podcast, like I, I live in New York City. Um, has some of the stricter, you know, COVID laws in the country. So like, you know, and, and I think be, in part because of how many people suffered and died early on, it was, you know, the epicenter of the pandemic and sadly is kind of back to that now um, due to some of these, you know, variants that are more contagious. But anyway, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I think there's a lot of shell shock and everyone wears, you know, everyone wears masks, you know, um, to go to a Yankees and Mets game, you um, uh, by law have to either test um negative for covid shortly before the game like within like within like something like a couple of days to a week you know um or you need to be able to show a vaccination card uh, a vaccination card that shows that you're fully vaccinated you know so you have to be able to do that at the gate you know when, when you before you before you go in and if you can't then they you know are not supposed to let, let you in and then you know that's for media that's for fans etc and it's still and it's at like 25 percent capacity rather than like 100 right, right right so like so 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 i i i wanted the journalist I, I wanted to see it for myself i wanted to see you know like how people respond um and i had also been i had done a d- decent amount and i'm still doing you know reporting on uh the state of texas opening up their economy which then allowed the rangers to 
you know, push the boundaries and go to the full 40, you know, uh, full 40,000 or so people with global life field. There's a lot, you know, um, so, so it was something, it was, a, it was something I wanted to just continue to, to look at for possible follow up, you know, um, for, for some of my own, you know, writing and journalistic inquiries. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I went, um, and it was wild, yo. Texas is crazy. <laughs> like, I mean, well, with, I mean all, with, with, all, with all respect to, to, to the wonderful Texans out there, y'all are crazy. Like, <laughs> I mean, you were in Dallas. And, y'all, and, y'all built different. And to be fair, like Dallas, like if you're going to go to Texas, you want to see Texas, like, I mean, go to Yosemite Sam country, go to Dallas. And, um, but so the, the place was packed. I thought I read, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I read they were actually going to have some sort of mask enforcement or something. Did they, did, they, did they say care? they say they no now now the the rule is that you have to wear a mask like when you go inside now that's not the state rule anymore um and that's curious right like <laughs> that they drop the mask mandate but like you know but it, but um but they allow businesses to set their own rules right and so um the stadium did you know have a mask have a mask rule and so so what you would see is you'd see people um and I witnessed this firsthand like you know. They were online without, you know, um, not not put not wearing the mask, and then they would uh, put over the nose and mouth, or or mouth, or <laughs> or, or, or chin, or I don't know what. <laughs> walk inside, walk inside the stadium, and then they pulled off again. Um, you know, and so like you know, they're, they're, they they didn't have um, concession to, to my knowledge. They didn't have concession dudes like you know the, the, the you know the hot dog, cracker jacks, peanuts. You know, get your ice cold beer kind of kind of types walking through the uh, through the aisles. Um, perhaps for social distancing reasons. Um, and so everyone, you know, and I, you know what I think it was? I think it's also because like, you know, you have to pay, pay with cash for those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably it. So I guess sort of social distancing, you know, um, uh, you know, did not wanting to spread via touch, which actually COVID, you know, does not spread via <laughs> touch. The CDC just said that. So, um, you know, but, but, well, also many scientists have, have thought that for like a good while now, but, um, but yeah, um, but so what it led to was like these massive lines at these like um, card only, car, you know, card or Apple Pay kind of like you know, only kiosks, <laughs> um, and just a total morass of people like kind of all on, to- on top of each other. Now, I mean, personally, guys, I don't think it was like a super spreader event because it, the roof was open. You know, th- there's probably ventilation, better, you know, good HVACs and all that. Um, and uh, you know, and, and so we, we also know that COVID coronavirus is, is not not spread quickly um, in those environments too often. Um, because, you know, because it's their circulation. However, when they have spread, you know, um, in those environments and those outdoor environments, it, it has been at like stuff like say like the soccer game in Italy, you know, mm-hmm. that like was like right. a, a epicenter for, for, you know, for COVID. Um, so, so like, again, just like that, that you would like tempt God <laughs> to that degree, um, to do that. And, you know, and it's not, and, and also that, you know, those, those aren't the only places where, um, people were, you know. There are like you know places you know parts of, of the stadium that function that, that that functionally work like indoor dining establishments and we know those are huge right. COVID COVID hotspots you know they're bathrooms you wouldn't use the restroom, <laughs> um, and uh, and so uh, like it, it's definitely you know it, it was uh, it was definitely a sight to see. So if you know if you were just sitting, did you sit in the press box for during the game? No, no, I, I actually went as a fan. Um, okay, so I, uh, even better. Yeah. So so if it's you know in the third inning of the game. If you looked at the 100 closest people to you, how many were wearing a mask? I think that there were times where maybe it might have been like 20%. There are times where it might have been like 50%. Okay. Like 50 in the high end, 20 in the low end. That's, that's what I found, personally. 
which again was a shock to my system because in New York, like there's like literally no place where there's like more than like five percent of people not wearing a mask. Right. Yeah. Um, and and that's like a restaurant, um, a subway with a couple homeless people on it, or like a <laughs> a Republican anti-COVID party. Like underground, you know, like like those are the places <laughs> where you will find more than five percent of people not wearing masks, you know, like um, at any, at any given time, you know, and so uh, that was really so that, that was, it was it was eerie again. I didn't feel too bad because like, I I I knew that I had you know, immunity, but like um, but you know, it was uh, it was definitely it was definitely shocking. Nonetheless, everyone has those those dreams, those being inappropriately dressed in some public situation dream, whether it's you know, showing up for the, the test without your pants or something. And over the last year, I've seen people on Twitter and places like that saying that they're now having that dream, but involving masks. Like, you know, I, I showed up for to talk to my boss and I forgot my mask and it was so humiliating. And I, I just <laughs> imagine that after a year of not being at this kind of event, it must have seemed, even if you were immunized, like sort of fundamentally strange on some level, even surreal, because we haven't been able to have lunch or coffee one-on-one, -on -one, and yet here you are with 30,000 people around you. Right, right. Um, you know, the I think the, the most, like, the thing that encapsulated the ethos of that event so well was I, was, as, I was still online, you know, as a national anthem was being sung. And there were more hands on heart than masks on faces. Like, and I had like video proof of this. <laughs> I, just, I just had to, I just had to be like, what, what is all doing? Right. But like, um, but yeah, that, that was, um, you know, like, it's like almost like masks are like hats. You like, you take them off in right. the country. <laughs> like, I think, uh, I think, uh, Jake Mintz texted me that. I yeah. come to this barbecue. Like masks a hat, bro. Like, you know, um, take it off. So, uh. No, Jake believes in, in the science. Don't don't worry, guys. No, Jake. Um, so so yeah. So anyway, yeah. That's that's a uh, that that was uh that's what I, that's what I witnessed. It, it was really um it was surreal and odd, and odd, you know, to see um how I guess cavalier people were. And again, and again, you know, I, my 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 certainly hope and prayer right is that no one got sick. And and oh, given that it was out, outdoors, like you know, I, I doubt it. I, I doubt that it was a, a major event. But like, but again, why tempt God when you're like when we're like we're like eight weeks away from like kind of like getting to a place where things might be better, you know, like, it's, you know, as, as, as shots get in arms and stuff like that, like eight, 12 weeks away from like, you know, like, like, um, there are, there are, we're close to having a fourth vaccine approved, you know, um, like there's just so many, like there, there's so many good reasons to just kind of like hold off and especially a team like the Texas Rangers, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like a, you know, a billion dollar entity can just kind of mm -hmm. like soak it for the price of their paying Ronet and Odor to not <laughs> play for them anymore because they traded him for, for, you know, for, um, you know, the only, the only way to really get prospects was by paying down his entire salary for two years. Um, like they could have, they could have eaten at the gate, you know, like, and, and just, uh, you know, and, and been fine in my opinion, but, but no, they, they want to do hundred percent capacity just to show that they can do it. Well, you use the term cavalier and that was kind of like my question. Like, was that the mood of the place just kind of cavalier about it or was there like an edge of defiance to it just and i and it's you know i live in illinois um our governor's a doofus but he's done a pretty good job on the covid thing um and and masks like new york have become part of the culture where you're actually surprised if you see someone without one mm -hmm. um but like it's you know texas is a unique place dallas is a unique place in a unique state 
um like like is it just like a whatever cavalier you know no or was it like an active def- did you feel like it, was there was any sort of defiant edge to it just like yeah screw these mass people screw this you know that that is we, a really we, 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 we live free here that is a really <laughs> great question and i think and i think it really depends you know like on one hand i think on a on a i think because of the law right because you know it's it was, it was a you know warmish day 80s and ever sunny um and um you know, like I, I think, I think from from on top, right? That sort of sets the culture of like kind of like what you think is safe or not. You know, mm-hmm. like you know, again, you know, in New York, people were, were you know, people were all shell shocked about COVID and all that, right? You know, we have indoor dining, even as our, you know, we're, we're like New York. I I don't, I really don't want to like make, make New York exempt from from like all the problems with COVID. Like, sure. you know, we um, you know, we are we have we're we're opening things up more, even as COVID rates are going up right now in our in our state, and particularly in our city, you know, right. in New York City. And so, like, that is unacceptably stupid, in my opinion. And, you know, and that's what we're doing, even as, of course, people wear masks more. Um, and so, um, you know, so, and, and, but, when, but when you do that, you, so even people who uh, uh, believe and agree with or, or want to agree with the science, like, you know, just, just you know, you, if the law says it's okay, like, you know, people will, you know, <laughs> you know, will jump through that. You know what I mean? Especially for things they love doing, uh, like going out to eat or going to movie theater or going to a baseball game, right? So, um, so I think there's a lot of that. And, and there were a lot of people there that were, you know, were wearing masks. Like, again, not as much as it should have been, but like, you know, um, I, I will say this. I mean, I think that, um, and it isn't, and it's not a scientific sort of like, you know, poll I was able to, you know, track on. But like I say, anecdotally, like, um, uh, black and Latino people tend to wear more, especially black folks, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, that were, that were present there. While, like, I'd say like eight out of 10 black people, I saw would wear masks while, like, it was like maybe three or four out of ten white people, you know. Um, so, so like, so, so some of that is probably due to a, frankly, a lack of proximity to the worst effects of the virus, due to perhaps your job status that you know that that often are shaped by socioeconomic factors. You know, we know that you know um, black and Latinos in the United States, you know, tend to work the kind of jobs that lead to more exposure <laughs> to, to to COVID, and so there's again a little more of a of a of a present under understanding that there's a problem, you know, I guess, because you know someone who who suffered or died from it. Um and then um but like uh but then, you know, and yeah, and, and then there were there were definitely there were there were definitely folks who again who who I think weren't weren't who weren't um tr- you know, didn't see themselves as being cavalier. And then but then there were, but then there were definitely people I spoke to who were like, yeah, this mass ma- mandate needed to go, they need to stop interfering with our lives, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know the script already. So Right. Um, and it's it, it really it really did vary. And isn't it fair to say, like, like you know, also blacks and Latinos in Texas are probably less likely to see Governor Greg Abbott as a role model or good dude? <laughs> Demographically speaking, yes, right. Like, you know, without being painting broad assumptions, you know, especially true, I guess, of of, of uh, black Texan people, you know. So, did does it make you feel mad? Because I think I would have been angry. I mean, just given what you were saying, like I've been sitting here for over a year now. And I'm sure for the most part, so have you, so so is Kevin. And again, I'm not saying we're saintly or anything. It was just the safe and also the community-minded thing to do. And even if a Governor Cuomo says, go sit in a restaurant, I kind of resent the people that do if they're not vaccinated in the sense that what's happening, whether it's in that restaurant or in the ballpark, is they are shirking their part of the risk and kind of expecting us to do the right thing. Because if everyone had had that attitude, then the virus would be everywhere. We, we The system would have been entirely overwhelmed. 
and the rate of infection would be even higher than it is today. So the fact that some large portion of us are not going out and having fun and saying it's time to take control of our lives back, they need, I mean, the virus doesn't know that. It's great that you're making that statement, but you're arguing <laughs> with a microbe or something smaller than a microbe. So, I mean, was there, was there at, at any point while you're sitting there and people are essentially in the middle of, of a natural disaster acting like everything's cool, did you feel frustrated at any point? I tried not to be. That's what I, that's what I could say. I mean, did you succeed? Would... <laughs> that's a great follow, right? Like, I mean, for you know, what I really try and remember is that like the stuff flows downstream. You know what I mean? Like from from the from our elected officials and you know and and, and those in government who you know who are responsible for the care of our you know uh, you know for, for our safety. Um, not not solely, of course. We which is why you know you walk look both ways before you cross the street, right? But like, <laughs> um, but you know, but but have a significant you know sort of responsibility for that. Um, giving bad, incomplete, false misinformation about this virus, and that is true in so many parts of this country. It is true in New York again. Yeah. My governor, my governor lied about you know uh, or fabricated like um uh, the amount of people who are dying in nursing homes. You know, my governor did not you know shut down. Allow the mayor to shut down New York City um, a week ahead of, uh, you know, a, a week earlier. Which, and, and there are, you know, statistical models that say that could have saved like tens of thousands of lives if he had just, you know, shut down the city, you know, uh, Bill de Blasio is, who didn't handle it great either. But like, you know, a week earlier, you know, um, similarly, our mayor, like, you know, told people, hey, go see a movie. Don't let the virus control right. itself, you know, and, and I and I and I and I ate that up in February. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wow, I'm going dying. I stopped, you know, like, you know, so, um. And I, I have to remember, like, you know, like we, we are we are white collar folks who get to read news all the time, you know, like, you know, and, and there there is a um, I not have, you know, not everyone has, I think, to me, to you know, like, I guess um, the amount of good information about stuff. And that, you know, leads to stuff and that, and I think that's part of the, you know, the thing that leads to choices. And again, again, I don't want to overgeneralize that either because a lot of educated people like don't care at all, you know, in part because they have no economic reason to care while plenty of, of course, you know, blue collar folks do care because they have, you know, they, cause they, cause there's a clear understanding that, that they're, you know, that their lives are more at risk. So, so I know, so I apologize even for the, for the, for the uh, overgeneralizing in that, but like, but like, you know, but like not having good information. You know, like I'm a journalist. I, I have all the information ahead of me, you know, you know, available to me right now. And, and I'm constantly thinking about it, like and synthesizing it. And it's still kind of confusing to figure out at times mm. what is acceptable, what is not like, and, you know, and that and that come, you know, that that's not I don't think that's my fault. I don't, I, I think I, get, I, I I'm pretty literate. Like, I think that is like, you know, the. You know, the, the, the way that, like, you know, 50 states treated it 50 different ways, you know, the CDC gave really weird you know, like advice and many times, you know, they told us not to wear masks and then they told us to wear masks. <laughs> like, you know, I, 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 like that was a, a thing that really happened, you know? Um, and, um, and so of course, you know, that's going to like breed distrust, you know, in, in, you know, um, among American citizens, you know, like, um, the, the his you know, the history of, uh, oppressive, you know, um, public health sort of policies and, you know, in, in the United States in present, you know, we you know lead you know downstream to distrust in the scientists all coming out and saying you know here's here's what we're gonna do you know or the, or the politicians for that matter you know like 
there's a whole bunch of reasons beyond just people being selfish jerks. Though many people are selfish jerks. <laughs> and I tr- and, and I was really, really, really trying to remember that, you know? That, like, you know, that, uh, that, that's, you know, that if you, if you hear enough of XYZ long enough, you know, you will be, you know, um, it will lower your defenses, so to speak, you know? And, um, and, uh, you know, and, and that's, that, that, that is, that is, I may still be your responsibility, but it's not solely your responsibility. Right, right. Well, Bradford, I, I, I want to thank you for your time, first of all. You were great. Um, if you want to follow Bradford on Twitter, and you certainly should, he is at underscore B Willie, B E E W I L L Y. Bradford, do you have anything else you want to plug? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I podcast weekly at uh, Baseball Prospectus. You know, it's like a might be a Jet Sharks thing, but hey, um, like, <laughs> nah, you know, it's, 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 it's there. Boat, it's there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's with uh, my, my dude Craig Goldstein. Um, and, uh, and that's a lot. That's a lot of fun. And it's you know, it's where you'll hear me, you know, do more game, qua game, <laughs> kind of <laughs> thoughts and takes analysis. Um, but uh, but not just that either. Uh, we often don't stick to sports, but but that's a, that's a lot of fun. I do that weekly, you know. So we we have a Patreon. Please consider support that so that we can justify talking for an hour, an hour and a half about <laughs> about a, about a silly game. Um, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm a columnist in New York Daily News. You know, a lot of baseball, a lot of, a lot of not baseball. And, um, you know, stay tuned because I got, you know, cool stuff planned um, in the in, in this world and, and outside of it, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, please continue to, to, to make safe, healthy choices. Get 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 vaccinated. It's, it's not bad. Um, and, and the peace of mind is wonderful. Um, uh, and wear your mask, you know. Absolutely. Wear your mask, yeah. folks. Bradford, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Brad. Podcast. 
Bradford for coming on. Uh, let's get to our musical guest first. Our musical guest this week is, do you know Ian Miller? Not personally. But you know who he is. I don't know if I do. Do I? Tell me. I don't I don't know. So Ian's my Ian's a dear friend. Ian is okay. uh is one half of Productive Outs. Oh, sure. Along, yeah, of course with, I do. Along with Riley Breckenridge. Um, yes. And uh so Ian is uh I'm gonna say primarily, it's important to say primarily, primarily a musician. Um he's the bass player in Kowloon Walled City. Um he's been in Less Art, he's been in Puig Destroyer, he's been in Starlight. So Ian if you know Ian well, that just monitoring his life from afar is exhausting. He's just one of those people. <laughs> it's absolutely, he's always doing something. And, and he's also addicted to making bands. Um, and this band is called Interesting Times Gang. And he's wanted to, wanted to do, oh, I'm going to do electropop now. And so he makes an electropop ba- album with his friends. Um, and that's what you're listening to now. Uh, I, lo- you can- I love that. And I I I follow, follow them on Twitter. So I, I only know... That, that the fake player much. names is what they're famous for. Right. Yeah. But I, I envy anyone as, as you know, I'm, I'm capable of, of picking up a, a guitar and, you know, sitting around the campfire and being the annoying guy playing folk songs. And I've, I've written a lot of, of songs in my life, uh, but I don't have that kind of facility. And I have a, a really good friend who I played music with sometimes who does and has that, that sort of Ben Zobrist ability to spot on anything. So for a long time, he was in San Francisco and th- this is slightly hyperbolic, but only just like a national tour would come through San Francisco and they would be like, our bass player is sick. Can do, is there someone around? Is there a, a bass player in the house? And he would go and pinch right. hit for the bass player. But if the tuba player was sick, he could do that too. Or the marimba <laughs> player. And so he has this long list of cameos with famous bands, and and I, I people don't know him necessarily, but he knows them. So I, I find that really cool of of Ian Miller that he can do the same thing. Yeah, so Ian's like in like 83 bands. He has like four podcasts. He uh, also, like he'll like, he just, at some point he'll just go, I want to make bread better than anybody, and he'll dedicate himself to it. <laughs> like he just becomes obsessed with things, and um, he's also he's in the revolving co co-host chair. He's going to be uh, co-hosting a show with me. He's an entertaining guy. Um, but yeah, so this is again, this is interesting times, gang. He's a little electro pop thing. Normally more associated with with hard rock or even harder rock, but this is a little different for him. Um, you can find him on Bat Bandcamp. It's it gang at Bandcamp or itgang dot Bandcamp dot com. Uh, check it out. And thanks to Ian for uh, living having an exhausting personality and continuing to create content that we can use. You ready to get the email? I am. We have a lot of them. Uh, if you want to send us an email, please do so. Like, we don't get a truckload of them. It was always a challenge in the past, too, but we like them. We read them all. We answer some of them. Uh, chinmusic <laughs> at fangraphs.com is where you should go. So, our first email comes from Grant. And Grant says, what is the cultural linguistic divide like in locker rooms? How does it manifest? What percent is bilingual? How much of a role do interpreters play? I've worked in places where my high school language classes and their recent immigrant English was the thin read the thin read we had to communicate, but at least there was that tiny bridge. Are there a lot of monolingual players? Are there efforts to help players become bilingual and do American language players learn a second language? Lots to cover here. So um, much. So much. Um I, I I'm not crazy about the word divide, but you know. 
is there a cultural linguistic divide in the locker room? Yes, but I don't think that's a, I think divide has a weird like negative connotation that's not really true. Um, I think it's just, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to walk into a locker room and see the Latin players with the Latin players. You know what well, I mean? That's, that's what I was going to say. Like, when does affiliation become a click? And, right. And does, does that become a negative? I've seen it really become a negative. Um, what percentage is bilingual? It depends on how you define bilingual. Um, for the most part, the the players from the Dominican and Venezuela uh, have come up and had and been subject to an English program from the team. Um, and their English skill is, you know, ranges anywhere from a two to an eight, depending on, <laughs> on, on, on how it went and, and how much they put into it. Um, the interpreters, for the most part, their only role is, is in terms of public facing stuff. You know, they're not around when players are talking to players. Um, usually if players are talking to players and there's a language divide, another player will end up being um, the, the go between the interpreter, um, the actual you know people whose job it is to be an interpreter. That's almost completely for the media. Um you, you know, when it's better now than it was, right? In terms of teams taking that on themselves. Now, when we, we talk about... You mean in terms of an interpreter? Well, no, in terms of training, in terms of education. Oh, way better, way better. Because I, I remember talking to... I mean, first of all, if we look at history, right? Then players who came over from Latin America, say in the, in the 60s or 70s, like Tony Perez talks about this, that he just got coming out of Cuba got dropped in Geneva, New York, upstate New York, or then Rocky Mount, North Carolina, without any understanding of, right. of how to get around or how to order dinner. And many years later, I was talking to our mutual friend Jason Parks about this, and this was probably, God, a dozen years ago at this point, that I was like, well, what what is the investment in that? And he told me, almost, in fact, he wrote something for me, that kind of imagined the perspective of this young player just over from the Dominican who is sitting by himself in an apartment at night having nowhere to go and nothing to do and nobody to talk to, and it's only on the field that he gets any stimulus. But it seems like that's not the case now. Yeah, I mean, teams have put big investments into these classes, and some of them are even kind of accredited and, and are allowing players to get high school diplomas. Um and it's it's a real challenge, and you know some of it's because a lot of these players are from the Dominican Republic, and and Venezuela, and you know once they became good at baseball, that's all they did, um, and they ended up you know going to a trainer, and maybe the trainer had some education, but they weren't going to school every day, right. um, and for the most part, you know the our, the Houston Astros language program goes all the way up the up the ladder, starts at the DSL and goes all the way through AAA, right. Um, a huge chunk of the classes in the DSL for these 16 year olds who just signed are Spanish classes. And just that so might, they, they can communicate better in their own language. Just, you, they need to be literate in Spanish to learn English. Makes sense. You, you need to get them to a certain level of Spanish. And again, some of these kids haven't been in school since they were 12. Um, right. It's not right, but it's how it is. And so you, you know, you deal with the cards dealt to you. And, and so um, there's a whole part of teaching is it's for teaching them Spanish, but there also are, life skills like here's how to open a banking account here's how to order a pizza um right. you know stuff like that and so that's that's provided um there's not a lot of monolingual players um those are you know you do find spanish players who are very uncomfortable with their english and and i think it's your job to communicate them in spanish as best you can at that point right. um it's, it's on you um 
Uh, do many American players learn a second language? No. Um, I can think of a few, and and just obviously just players that you know I was I were Astros, so I was close to him. So um, Alex Bregman learned Spanish. It's great, and uh, you know, and obviously he was he's a, a otherwise Spanish speaking infield. Uh, Correa, uh, Altuve, and and Gurriel, and you know Gurriel came over from Cuba, you know, late in his career, and, and you know his English got better, but didn't speak much English at all. Altuve's English is very good. Uh, Correa's English is phenomenal. Correa, Correa like, uh, when he was before, he, when he's until a kid in Puerto Rico, said, I want to learn English because I'm going to be a baseball player. Right. Uh, and did so. Um, but they're still, it's still, you know, communicate, it's more comfortable speaking Spanish as a communicate thing. So he learned, he learned Spanish, but I don't know a lot of others. Um, yeah, the Spanish kids are, thre- are kind of not threatened, but, but pressured to speak English, but the English players are not, thre- are not pressured to, to speak Spanish. I always wonder, you know, you're watching a game on TV. I mean, I don't wonder, I know. But when you see two players of Latin background, one is the first baseman, one is the base runner, they reach, you know, one one singles and, and stops at first base, and then there's a conversation, just as there is most of the time. Yeah. Almost to the point that when there isn't one, you sort of, like, do those guys not like each other? Like, when, when there's not some kind of friendly greeting between the the players at, at first base. And I think they must be talking to each other in Spanish, right? And I don't know why I find that interesting, um, except possibly that the first base umpire has no idea what they're saying, probably. But, right. Yeah, it's, I, think it's, I think it's cool. And the, the one adjunct to Grant's question I would ask is, you know, that infamous Kevin Mather rant with the, the Mariners that cost him his position there, he seemed really resentful of having to supply interpreters for the Japanese players. And I wonder if other organizations are also negatively dwelling on that expense, which no. seems like a weird nickel and diming thing to do. It, that's anyway. the thing. Like, yeah, I mean, exactly. You, you, you hire a guy, he, he's, he can interpret. And, and like, it's like total, your total outlay is less than six figures, including whatever you want to call employment costs, like insurance, all that kind of stuff. They don't make a ton of money. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know why anyone would care. Yeah. If you, if you're, if you're paying, you know, $14 million for some huge star from Japan and you know, for 14.1, he gets an interpreter. Do you care? You shouldn't, especially right. because it's just, if, it was if, shocking. If that's the thing that's going to make him 1% more effective and make that $14.1 million worth it to you, then you do it. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was that was no, that was shocking. I don't teams in general do not see it that way. I don't. I just think that like, you know we sign him, we need an interpreter. Okay, we'll take care of that. <laughs> um, email comes from Mark. Mark says I wasn't around for Up and In, but I've been loving tune music so far. That's good to hear, Mark. We we I, you know it's always great to have the old listeners who somehow waited a decade for a new show. Uh, but it's good to have the new people too. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping you can shed some light on the relationship between a team's profits, the value of the franchise, the wealth of its ownership, and the salaries it pays its players. Deep breath, Stephen. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> on one hand, dudes like Kevin Mather will tell you about how much money teams lost last year. When you see lists like the one in Forbes, they show a ton of teams with negative operating revenue. And yet we know that there's money coming in from other sources, real estate, media deals, etc. And we know that the franchise values continue to climb. What causes the values of the franchise to appreciate when the team is losing money from operations? If I recall, some teams show operating losses almost every year, yet still get more valuable for their owners. 
So then we come to the question of player compensation. If we're trying to determine what a fair salary structure is, how much should we pay attention to a franchise value or profits and losses? As we get closer to the CBA negotiations, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about all these kind of numbers. I'd like to get some perspective about what's meaningful and what isn't. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mark, uh, first of all, <laughs> welcome to capitalism. Um, <laughs> it's a fun time, especially late version. So uh, let's start with with uh, teams in a in a vacuum and how they report things. Uh, it, this is this is standard creative accounting for you know nine and ten figure organizations, right? And um, the Dodgers under the previous ownership were a great lesson in this. If you want to go back and look at the way that that ownership structured the business, it is a terrific education in, in how to hide money. And they all do it. It's easy to do. And you you, you you just mess around with your spreadsheet. You can say, well, I lost, you know, we lost $9 million or, or you know, in the Cubs case, biblical losses, I'm told. <laughs> um, and, the, you know, then the amazing thing about I mean, the Cubs case is an easy one to you know go into detail with. So they claim biblical losses and a, a huge portion of those quote unquote biblical losses are debt service. And the reason they have so much debt service is because they bought huge swaths of incredibly valuable land in Wrigleyville around the ballpark. And they didn't pay cash for it. They took out loans to pay for all that. And now they have to pay those loans. Um, the investment of that real estate is going to pay off greatly. But for now, it's debt. And so you have biblical losses. Um, when in reality, it makes the team worth more. Um, and all of these things, you know, teams make tons of money off outside the baseball spreadsheet if you will right. you know and, and real estate's a good example you know uh, most teams invest heavily in the land around their ballpark and that way they can own the parking lots that way they can lease the land to the restaurants and bars and and, and they can make all this money because the team is there um, and that doesn't show up on this standard baseball profit and loss statement it's it's somewhere else and so you know one thing you're going to hear a lot to get let's get to the end of your question here about the cba and you're going to see a lot of these numbers is, you know, a huge, and you're, you're going to hear this a lot, is like the owners aren't going to open the books to the players. Um, and they don't. And they don't have to, and they're not going to. And so that and that's how you can get into these arguments over, you know, players deserve X percent of revenue. That's fine. But what is revenue? Um, and then <laughs> right. you get you can get in these huge semantic arguments over what is revenue? And so... Um, it's going to, it's, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. You'd need a, like a real PhD economist to really explain a lot of this stuff. And it's going to get a really ugly on the CBA over exactly that definition of what is revenue. Like the, you know, the, 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 the teams might offer them, look, we're going to make sure salaries are, you know, what a standard number in sports is somewhere around 50% of revenue. Um, we'll get you there. And then the players are going to go, well, that's great. What are you counting as revenue? Right. Um, you, you sequester all the income streams. And if you're the owner, you can double and triple dip on this stuff, which is my, my favorite part of what we did learn from the McCourts when the McCourts got divorced and then he ended up selling the team. So you have a, a baseball team. You are going to buy, let's say you're going to buy the Los Angeles Dodgers. Okay, well, the Dodgers are the Dodgers and they're going to get their revenue from ticket sales. So that's one company. Now... We're going to start the Dodger Parking Company. Right. And we're going to sell the parking lots to the Dodger Parking Company for a buck. 
it's a related party transaction. So there's no negotiation. They're going to get a very good deal because since Kevin, you and I have bought the Dodgers, we still own both. Except that the Dodgers, as a baseball team, no longer own their own parking lots. And not only that, but right. not only... Los Angeles Dodgers Parking Incorporated, a subsidiary of Los Angeles Dodgers, owns the parking lot. Exactly. And here's the really cool part, too, is that just as you are going to be, as the experienced baseball man among us, you are going to be president of the Dodgers and I'm going to be vice president, and you're going to get five hundred thousand dollars a year to be president of the Dodgers. I'm I'm going to take only three hundred thousand because I'm I'm humble that way. But I'm going to be president of Dodger Parking, and you're going to be vice president. And in that capacity, I'm going to take five hundred thousand dollars, and you're going to take three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and now we're both drawing eight hundred thousand dollars. And I haven't gotten to the Dodger Concession Company yet, which I have also created, and which I'm going to make our wives president and vice president of and you and i just we'll just be consultants on that for a hundred thousand we'll be on the board we'll be on the board and all the money for that dodgers baseball team we're going to give them 10 percent of those gross revenues or or net net even better and all this money is still going to us or our families but it's not going to the corporate entity that is known as the los angeles dodgers and that is why you can make a team look like it's broke Right. And so I, the, the one thing to, to always look at, and you mentioned this, is the franchise values. You know, you, every team does it, um, even the quote unquote small market teams, which do not do not exist. Don't buy the narrative. Um, will claim, oh, you know, they, some guy buys the team for 700 million. They claim 10 million in losses <laughs> every year for 10 years. And then he gets out and he sells the team for two billion. You know, things worked out. Didn't lose money. Didn't lose a dime. It's all creative accounting. Um, I don't, I, I, I don't have a great answer for you for how you end up lining up with how much players should make. Cause I think their revenue is hard to figure out. Right. They've done a great job hiding a lot of it. Um, but it's there. And, and that's the tell, by the way, we were talking earlier about Applebee's. You were saying your local Applebee's closed. That's what happens to franchises that lose money. They close. No, or one don't re- make enough. Right. Right. That was the weird. So, so. I, let's talk about local food in the Cal. It's horrible. Um, so at one point we had two Panda Expresses. Okay, more my, than two more than anyone needs. That's the Panda. Before I, I I I lived under my current dietary restrictions, Panda was my go-to on the road food. So okay. you be quiet. Um, so anyway, they closed one of the Panda, one of the Pandas here in DeKalb. And they said, and it was weird. And this is how, this is another way companies work. And this gets even uglier when you think about like Toys R Us or GameStop and some of that stuff. They closed it. It was profitable, but not profitable enough. Right. It wasn't losing money. It was, they were making money off this panda, but they closed it because they weren't making enough money on it. And that happens all the time. And you read about that with like magazines, even websites that they'll say like, you know, this, this is a distraction to our larger operations. We don't need this. Even though it's making money, it's mm. not making enough to justify the resources we have to devote to it. And it's a very bloodless, cold-blooded, I should say, way of doing things. But you understand it. And and if baseball really was having teams that were were dying that way, they would do the same thing. But somehow they never do. Yeah. I mean, I the Rays are making money. They're not making as much as the Yankees, obviously. Not even close. But I don't think they're losing money. Right. And that and that's another thing, too, is is for people to realize, in, in addition to the shenanigans we just talked about, 
the national TV and other revenue, internet revenue locks in a certain amount per year For that everybody. you're gonna you're gonna make whether you go 162 or 62 and 100. So there there's that. There is the fact that the money multiplies really nicely. If you look at the fan cost index, which is how much it costs a family of four to go to a game, and then you wonder why a team would trade for and sign a Francisco Lindor to a ton of money. If it costs $250 or $300 for every family of four that you add, I don't mean cost, I mean gains you that much money, and say, well, that's going to mean that you're going to go from drawing 2.2 million fans last year because you had a five a 500 team to drawing 3 million fans a year well multiply 200 or 350 dollars uh times 500,000 more fans and you right. get an obscene amount of money and and the other like the little secret to always remember is ml bam right. um so ml bam was established and and was invested in by the 30 teams and as part of that they got a piece of it and ml bam uh, a is incredible um, and have, and have, but they're not only great at what they do, they have developed groundbreaking technology that makes them more money, um, primarily in streaming. Um, you know, the technology that they use to stream baseball games is incredible and also something that they license. So if you watched, um, if you watched NCAA basketball on your computer during the tournament, that's ML BAM streaming technology. If you watch, I think the site's called like Live Nation or something like that. They stream concerts. If you watched back when we had concerts, <laughs> um, things like Coachella and Lollapalooza on your computer, that was ML Bam streaming technology. If you watched, and there's, if you watch WrestleMania live on your computer, that's ML Bam's live streaming technology. They paid for that. They licensed it, and teams got a cut. Baseball baseball teams made money from you watching college basketball on your computer this year. Um, and, and the ML BAM money is, is significant because of how good their technology is. It's, it's licensed to, you know, in a lot of places. Um, so there's 8 million revenue streams here that are not necessarily what you talked about, like people buying tickets, walking into games, buying, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's 8 million revenue streams around baseball, and it's tough to kind of wrap your head around it and figure out which of the, you know, how much teams are really making and, and therefore how much players should make. Right. Um, and, and you alluded to this, too, before the real estate aspect, which more and more teams are getting into. Massive. Yeah. And that doesn't count towards, again, the baseball team's profit. It happens to be possible because of the baseball team, but it's a separate thing. So if you're selling apartments around Bush Stadium or Wrigley Field or, or what have you, that definitely goes to the Ricketts family, right, in, in, in Wrigley. Mm -hmm. But does it go to the players? Should the players have a piece of that? And you can kind of argue that they should because they made it feasible in the first place. But what chunk of it should it be? You know, and, and the owners are going to say none. Um, we've talked about this on the podcast a few times, but I, so I'm not asking for like a super detailed answer, but do you have any reason to believe the CBA is not going to be contentious? No, I'm kind of terrified of that. I don't expect the only thing I can think of, and this kind of happened in 2002, which was one of the last times uh, that it got really bad. This was the one that opened up after the 94-95 problem. So they, once that was over, we had a period of, of sort of Pacific sailing for a while. And then in 2002, they really thought they were going to shut down. And in fact, I was working for BAM at that time. And they took the liberty of getting rid of me and various other people because they're like, yeah, there won't be baseball anymore, so bye. We're letting yep. everybody off. And uh, not all of us came back in the same order in which we, we left. 
But in that case, I think there was a sense on both the part of the owners and the players that hey, we just went through nine eleven. Like we don't we don't need to we don't need to <laughs> right. to look like assholes right now, even if we have some legitimate things to argue about. And so they did end up wrapping it up without a major disruption. And the only thing I can think of is that kind of that spirit will prevail. I don't think so. That seems like a naive thing to say, given just how much arguing they've done even in the last year. But they could say like, hey, you know, we just had a pandemic. Five hundred thousand people or more are dead. Let's let's not squabble. But I think they're going to squabble. So, I mean, as as someone who knows the history of the game better than anyone I know, um, is there a way to kind of compare the level of contention between the Union and New York um, to our last two work stoppages in 81 and 94, was it? Yeah. Uh, and there were, like, little brief interruptions. Like, the, the 1985 season was delayed yeah, yeah, momentarily. But... Or, or Faye Vincent opened it up uh, a few years before he was finally deposed by Bud Selleck. It's hard because I think in those early days, you still had a lot of old guard owners and old guard union guys who were just fighting for acceptance just the the basic concept that the players were if not equal partners pretty close to that in the game and the owners particularly in 81 were really trying to claw back all the losses that they'd had over the previous like 15 years roughly you'd hope that now we're past that point and this is a new generation and that uh the owners are a little uh, amenable uh, more amenable to you know, seeing the players as a, a cost of doing business and, and part of the business, but I, I'm, I'm not hopeful. I mean, it really just depends on, on the personalities. And the one thing that we've seen also is that in the past couple of negotiations, Tony Clark, I, I don't want to characterize him personally. I don't know him personally, but it seems like they were willing to settle for smaller potatoes. Yeah, and I don't think that's the case anymore. No, I don't think so either, and I think there's the sense that he knows that if uh, if that happens again, that he might not be around for the next one. So these are these are big things. And what what bugs me is like even as recently as the spring, we've seen management say, "Hey, we'll give you the DH, and uh, and you'll give us expanded playoffs." And that's pennies on the dollar. That's not even one full time salary more per team than if uh, if they didn't do anything at all versus the millions of more dollars that the owners would get yeah for... tens of millions right so i don't i mean that that just it seems almost an insulting offer so i don't know what they and then of course they punished the rest of us and i'm sure there are people who are listening who hate the dh so i'm sorry but i, I i'm a, a dh aficionado or appreciator i think it's a, a good thing when used properly no question so i i don't want to see pitchers hit nope so yeah, I don't. I, I. So we're all suffering for the fact that they kind of, you know, created this unbalanced uh, offer in the in the first place. I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful, but we'll we'll find out sooner than later. Because what by the All Star break we'll start hearing bad rumblings somewhere not. around there. Yeah, somewhere in the midpoint. Yeah. yeah. Um. The next email comes from Dan. Dan says I'm into college baseball and always happy to flip a game on any weekend day. I'm old enough to remember Strasburg mania and the crazy hype around him in his draft year. I turned on SportsCenter the other day, and Jack Leiter highlights were featured in the first segment. My question is, are we seeing more of Jack Leiter because of access to college baseball streams, or is he on a Strasburg level? How would you grade Leiter and or Rocker versus Strasburg as a junior? Um, Jack Leiter is really good. He and Kumar Rocker is really good. They're very exciting. They're the, probably the two top college pitchers in the class. 
Um, Jack Leiter, if, if we drafted tomorrow, would probably be the number one pick in the draft and go to go to Pittsburgh. Um, Sorry, Jack. Yeah, you know, maybe it'll, <laughs> things will get, maybe things will work out there. I'm not giving up on that one. Um, but I think a big part of the hype is, is first of all, like interest in the draft between Steven Strasburg's draft and now have has increased exponentially. Um, and so you hear about these players a lot more. Um, but also, like, yes, the access to televised college baseball, a lot of it through streaming. You know, it's, it's, there's not a ton of if you turn on if you have cable, um, you turn your cable box, there's not a ton on unless you have like a big sports package and they're filling up time on SEC or ACC network with it. Um, but if you have something like ESPN Plus, because they own all of those little regional college networks, like you can watch one of 12, 15 games at any point during on, on a weekend. Um, and so it's a lot more available between that and the interest. It makes these players a lot more well-known beforehand. I would bet that more than 90% of, of, of baseball fans had not seen Steven Strasburg pitch before he was the number one pick in the draft. Um, when, when you showed me the text of this one, I was a little confused and I, I think it was autocorrect, but the, uh, Dan, he was, he was writing about Strauss and I thought the Waltz King. Yo, you're old <laughs> enough to remember 1866 when the blue he, Danube hit. He had a good breaking ball. He did well. That's that's the whole wall. And then you swing and you miss. Right. You just, One, two, three. <laughs> exactly. It's it's the best drill. Honestly, this this is a true story though. Seriously. Wait, wait, wait. real quick. Are we telling? Are we, we're telling. We're telling Johann Strauss stories. Now? No, this is a baseball thing. Okay. So Moose Scourin, when he came up, was not. Good around the bag. His footwork was not good enough. He was aptly named. He he was. Now the moose was not short for moose. It was short for Mussolini. But his was oh, that true? Yeah. His grandfather, when he was a baby, his grandfather <laughs> looked at him crying, and said, "You know that baby looks like you know Mussolini ranting at at the Italian public." So he was called Mussolini and shortened to Moose. However, yes, it was apt. And Casey Stengel said, "If you want to stay up here, you're going to have to learn." to play the position better we need to work on your footwork around the bag and so what did he do did he send him back to a ball for some remedial lessons with stuffy mcginnis or somebody he sent no. arthur miller yes <laughs> he did <laughs> arthur murray taught him arthur dancing murray, in a hurry yeah, yeah. as the That's song it. goes so yeah no there's something to the whole strauss uh, uh connection i i remember the the high i feel like the the hype correct me if i'm wrong for this but I, I believe the hype for Strasburg started sooner and was louder than it was for more comparable pitchers or, or really anybody before that. Yeah, I, think. I mean, he was the best pitcher as a sophomore going in. Everyone knew he was the best player in the draft. He pitched like it. I mean, yes, you know, the, the question at, at its core is, you know, is does lighter and or rocker compare to him? And the answer is no. Like Strasburg, <laughs> I think Strasburg, I'm trying to think. It's my, I, I don't think this is hyperbolic. I think Strasburg's the best college pitcher in the history of the draft. Um, you know, people were, you know, the, the argument then was like him or Pryor, and those are probably your two best. Um, but I think most people would take Strasburg. It was it was unbelievable. There's not, I mean, this is, this is obvious because when we say generational talent, it means that there's not one all the time. But there isn't one in every draft, right? No, not at all. Absolutely not. And, I, you know, it's it's... There were plenty of drafts that did not create that just, you know, got you a couple all-stars and, and no one, you know, no even MVPs or, or guys you'd put in like a top five players in baseball discussion. Um, but yeah, Strasburg was, was seen as a generational talent. Like I think about, when I think about the best pitchers to come out, you think about 
Strasburg, Pryor, Brian Taylor, um, who's probably still the best high school pitcher people have ever seen. Um, yeah, yeah, that's so, a sad story. Yeah, so like Light and Rocker, like these dudes are really good. They're they're you know best pitchers in the class, but they're not seen as generational. Holy shit, this is unbelievable. Um, and there's no guarantee that Pittsburgh would even take him. I would you know if if, they, if the draft was tomorrow, I'd, I'd put the odds on them taking Lighter at seventy four point three percent, somewhere around there. Unless for whatever reason, I mean, with the with the draft slotted now, there I guess there's less incentive. As the pirates have done before to tank a pick, right? Yeah, they're not going to tank the pick. It just becomes like, do you want to get creative with it and do? And this is a perfectly reasonable thing because of how the bonuses escalate at the very top. Is like if you can get a player you really like at one, and still pay him a ton, but shave two million dollars off the bonus and recalibrate that two million dollar down the road, you can end up with like four first rounders. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so do you want to do that and, and kind of spread your odds out? Um, I, I don't think they'd do it in this case because Lighter and Rocker are so good, but um, that's something to think about. And it'll be interesting. This is obviously, we're in a weird spot where we don't know what the draft's going to look like after this. So we're 20 rounds after, you know, we're 20 rounds this year. I don't think it's ever going to get to 40 again. I think 30 is the most. It might be permanently 20. Uh, but, you know, with a CBA comes a new draft as well. And that's important because really, I mean, I know that those late rounds are not that productive. But what bothers me about that is cutting off access. For, yeah, for sure. For, you know, and and that's that's just about expanding the possibility of the dream is, and, is really what it is. And Baseball America did the work, and, and I can't remember the number, but it was like it was 40-plus players in the big leagues right now who were drafted after the 20th round. Um, so one more than one per team. Uh, our last email comes from Andrew. Speaking of generational talents. Uh, it just occurred to me that you had an inside view of what it looked like when Otani posted. If memory serves, every team at least expressed some amount of interest. Were you involved with that process? Do you know about other teams' efforts? Do you have any stories? Yes, I do. <laughs> well, I'm going to sit back and listen. <laughs> so, um, so Otani was posting. We did meet with Otani's uh, representatives in, in, in our suite during the GM meetings. Uh, no, during the winter meetings. And uh, based on that conversation, as well as some other um, investigatory work, uh, I was fairly convinced, uh, and and I still think rightly so, that the chances of convincing him to come to Houston were uh, tiny or infinitesimal, that he was going to go to a coast and, and more likely than any, a West Coast. He, he wanted to, to, to do the West Coast thing. Um, we did prepare a presentation. Um, I was involved with that presentation. I wasn't the lead on it, but I was involved and put something, helped put some things together for that presentation. Um, it was provided to them. We never, it, it, but, you know, it wasn't like other teams had the whole, the, the whole dog and pony show. Like, they bring them in. Um, put his name on the scoreboard with a Photoshop in his uniform, announce him on the stadium and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, you know, we, we did what we thought we needed to do. We thought it was, you know, almost no chance he would even consider coming to Houston. Um, so we did kind of throw our hat in the ring, knowing what the result was going to be anyway. Um, and we spent a lot of time evaluating him. Um, liked him better as a pitcher. I thought he was a, you know, he's proved me wrong. I thought he was a bit of a power goof as a hitter. Like, it's, it's just way more power than hit tool. Um, right. I, th- I think he's better than that. 
Um, but it was, it was really interesting and, and very exciting and, and it was a fun time, but we, we, I don't want to call it half-hearted, just we kind of like knew the conclusion. We, we did it, but it, you know, we knew it wasn't going to work. Why did you know it wasn't going to work? It, it, there was, uh, there was no reason to think you, like it, it, it's the Darvish was a really unique case and, 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 and obviously went to Texas. Um, but a lot of the players want to, want to play on a coast. Um, and a lot of players want to play on a West Coast, and, and, and Otani seemed really, it seemed really strong that he was going to, to go to a West Coast team. There's every reason to believe that they were the teams a most in, and b most appealing to him. Um, and a lot of that involves like travel to Japan, especially not just for Otani, but for his family and things like that. Um, that it just everything was lining up for him to, to end up with a National League or American League West team that was that played on the coast. And now the Angels have two really special players whose efforts they can waste as they proceed not to make postseason after postseason. They look kind of good, though. Yeah, they could be. I mean, you always worry about pitching depth. You always yeah, worry about, with them. you know, somebody is going to disappoint. And they really, I, I, I should look this up, but when was the last time the Angels really developed, drafted and developed, or for that matter, from the, the international market anywhere, really, an ace pitcher was it Jared yeah. Weaver? Was it's, it's, it Mark it's been a Witt? Struggle. Yeah, no, it's been a it's been a struggle. Uh, I remember the I remember the Mike Witt no hitter on the last day of the year, whatever year that was. Eighty four again. That's a, That's a theme for today. If you want a no hitter, folks, always look at Game One Sixty Two. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, it's a new administration there. I think Perry's going to do a good job there. I don't think this is they're necessarily ready, but I mean, they do have. It's a terrifying, I mean, like Otani Trout Rendon as a, as a sequence is terrifying. It's just like, what, what do you have around that? And that's where it gets quickly below average. I really enjoy David Fletcher though. I mean, he's only this he's big. He's super fun to watch. Yeah. yeah. And he doesn't strike out. He struck out three times already this year, which is a lot by his standards. And uh, yeah, and he can slap hit 300. I mean, again, that's like not the most productive guy, but it's a fun guy. Yeah. So uh, that's it for the email again. Send us an email. We like getting your email. It's uh, chinmusic at fangraphs.com. They all end up in my inbox, so I'm, I'm reading them. It's, there's, I, don't, I don't have an assistant. <laughs> I'm happy to be the assistant. I could do that for you. I'll forward them to you. Yeah. Um, Steve, let's catch up with you. Okay. And you and your life. Can I, can I tell you something em- embarrassing and semi-disgusting? That I mean, this is a great way to introduce myself to your listenership. <laughs> This is the the hazards, the health hazards of podcasting, actually. So I yesterday I had a uh, a business Zoom call that had to do with with the podcasting, and uh, I I would have been happy with just the audio portion, but no, they they wanted to gaze upon my visage. So I do the whole thing. I I get cleaned up, which is not something you always have to do here in the pandemic, and uh, I when I went to get dressed, I realized I could not find any pants. I am not comfortable in shorts. I, I will wear shorts to the gym, which is not someplace I've been going during the pandemic either for obvious reasons. And uh, I had no choice but to, to wear shorts. So I'm talking on this call and I guess I was a little nervous and just absentmindedly as they were talking to me and talking about dollars and, and different things, you know, financial stuff that was serious and I had to pay attention. I, Business. I, I Right. Like and not my favorite thing to do. I'm I'm a I'm an entertainer, folks. That's that's what I'm I'm here for. I, I really need an agent to <laughs> to handle that that stuff for me. And I'm I'm sort of absentmindedly scratching at my left knee, which is only available to me because 
the laundry had gone astray and I could not find what I, I normally would have w worn. And I guess I didn't realize that in the course of this hour-long phone call that I had just been scratching at the same spot rather compulsively for a long time. And so at some point as I'm scratching at my knee, I realized that my fingers are getting wet. And <laughs> <laughs> I told you this is disgusting. So I look down for the first time and my left hand is just covered in blood. And, uh, for the rest of the call, I, I didn't think I would bleed out or anything, but for the rest of the call, I'm trying, I'm kind of trying to pay attention. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. Uh, we can furnish that. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And then looking down periodically and trying to staunch the hole that I had carved in my own leg. And so, uh, that, that don't, this is, if you are podcasting, keep your hands on the desk, both hands at, at all times. And that's been catching up with Stephen Goldman. <laughs> <laughs> One transfusion later. Oh, uh, God. I'm okay. No, I'm, so, so Stephen, you have a podcast. I do. The Infinite Infi Inning. Yes. Infinite Inning. Everyone should, should, should subscribe and I've listen. I've got three. I, I'm okay. omnipresent. Wait a what's the second one? All right. So there's what I'm, there's what I'm not going to let you talk about. So what's, what's the second one is, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm not sure which one you're not going to let me talk about. So we'll find out, I guess we will try. I do one with Craig Calcaterra and our, again, our aforementioned mutual friend, Mike Farron called Everything is Broken, which is about Bob Dylan. This is the one no one should listen to. Um, <laughs> so the, these three idiots talk about Dylan every week. It's, it's a no, don't listen to that. Okay, what's your third one? <laughs> well, the thing is that we talk about the bad albums too. And my, Mike always says- You talk that the, about all the albums? All the albums, yes. And and even the good ones have some some flawed moments, even if you're a, an aficionado. But Mike always says that the bad ones are more fun to talk about. I think we find good stuff, interesting stuff. To I, saw, I said we're not going to talk about that. Okay, we're not talking about that. But it is called Everything is Broken, <laughs> me and Craig Calcaterra. And then I spend even more time with Craig Calcaterra. Sometimes Craig even guests on The Infinite Inning. So I get three shows a week with Craig Calcaterra, but there is, and we're going to record this a little bit later today, actually, it's called Say It Ain't Contagious, and it is a kind of intersection of baseball politics and social justice show. It's still looking for an audience, so if you guys want to, uh, if you listeners want to come check us out, it's it's a lot of fun, uh, at least I find it a lot of fun, because it's me and Craig, who are two idiot baseball writers, with four college professors who have doctorates in things like history and political science and stuff. And we talk about the, the current events in the game. And, and for example, the, the same stuff that we've talked about today about say Georgia and, and voter suppression is a kind of topic that we would embrace there. Whereas mm -hmm. on, on the infinite inning, I talk about, I mean, it's, it's, it's trying to figure out the present through the past. And so what I'm always trying to do is find, stories in baseball that will help us understand what we're going through now. And, and so, and you are currently a consulting editor at baseball prospectus. Yeah. That's a, oh boy. Kind of. A, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that was quite a reaction. <laughs> yeah. It, well, you know, it's funny cause I, I intentionally got out of the game for about a year at one point, about five years ago now. And when by I choice, by choice. And when I came back, I wanted kind of a low pressure job and our old colleague John Parado was at a site called FanRag. And they were perfectly nice and they their money spent perfectly well and they were really nice guys. Checks cleared. E yeah, except that I was the only thing was like, but can I work for something called FanRag? 
Like the the I will I will not say that the jokes write themselves. Like who thought of that? You know, uh, and it I it died because a lot of startups do. But uh, I I feel like if it was something other than fan rag, it might have survived. I don't know. But I did find when I went back that I had a, a taste for doing this again, which I had sort of lost for a while. And at that time, Baseball Prospectus was sold. And uh, you and I need not go through that history because we're both well aware of it. But it was taken over. It had been kind of neglected for a while. Yeah. And it was taken over by Brett Sayre and his partners, who are tremendously nice guys, sweethearts of, of people. And they really wanted to reconnect with the history of the site. And I was one of the people that they reached out to first to uh, contribute to the annual, which after, I think, 12 editions on my part, I had to get past my PTSD to agree to. But I, I, because seriously, I see that book and and I I need to book a a psychotherapy session and and some Xanax right away after years of putting that thing together. Uh, And then, you know, we got to talking and... It turned out that uh, they were also making a change at editor-in-chief to someone who hadn't had that job before, Craig Goldstein, who is also... A complete sweetheart. He seriously... like, yeah. And this is, I was saying before that I say nice things uh, about you to everybody. Like, my relationship with Craig is different because you and he are different people. But the same thing, like... And we I, are not related. No. <laughs> this is, Most people ask. Yeah, exactly. No, he's not your son or anything. Uh, but you would be proud, I think, to have him as your son, because the the thing about Craig and it's another person where, like, we do have that creative friction sometimes, like don't 100 percent agree with him about about everything. And, and it's my job, honestly, to make suggestions and make a lot of them. And sometimes often I hope they say, yeah, that's a good point, Steve. We didn't think of that. And then other times Craig's like, yeah, I don't know. And then I just have to be like, OK, that was today's suggestions brought to you by Stephen Goldman and right. and be OK with that. But he. It seriously, I, when it comes to anything, hiring people, firing people, publishing something, editing it, not publishing it, like he really, the thing that he thinks about is how is this going to affect the other guy? Because he really feels it if someone suffers any pain as as part of his decision making process. And he, he's he's again, he does the job. He does the job really well. But he is the exact opposite of ruthless, and I love him for that. And I'm not saying that just because my continued employment is dependent on his uh, liking me. But the the long story uh, of the title is that they they want me to come back and be kind of like a gray eminence. Mm-hmm. And what what I always describe it as is uh, this kind of a Star Wars thing is being kind of the Obi Wan Kenobi Force ghost who just sort of sits there glowing in the background and occasionally says, use the force, Craig. And that's kind of what the job is. And I, I write a little bit and I edit a little bit and I, I try to, uh, to, I do work on the book projects a little and just, again, make constructive suggestions here and there. And thus that is the consulting part. It's not like I'm an outside guy who was supplied by some temp service. It's like consulting detective, just like Sherlock Holmes. And, uh, you know, you are, you have written books on your own, including a, a pretty remarkable Casey Stengel biography. Thank you. Um, anything else in that world? Not yet. I've, I've got a lot of different things going. I've been, uh, always. I've been, yeah, it's, it's a difficult business because I, I've been working on this, this novel on and off for basically for forever and I may never stop. Uh, I, I hope that, that I get that done and can move on to the next thing sometimes. I've had a lot of things sort of start and, 
you know, sort of die at the agent representing it stage or publisher stage. And th- this is the thing, like, you know, if you're if you're going to do this, you have to be prepared for that kind of rejection. And the thing that I never want to do is the obvious thing where I there there's a, a I get a lot of books now for the podcast and, and sometimes I ask for them and sometimes people send it, send them to me. And I've realized I could be back between covers on the shelves pretty quickly if I just wanted to do a book like, how about them Yankees? Them Yankees. Enjoy the Yankees. This is a book for you Yankees fans about the Yankiness of the Yankees. Chapter three, Derek Jeter was neato. And I just, I mean, it would be a check, I guess. I just, (laughs) I don't mean to insult those things because like it's, it's a legit thing and some of them are well done and I'm sure people enjoy them. I just don't my attention span at at this point in my life is not such that I I think I could do it. Yeah, I it's, I, I I understand what you're saying. Um so I mean do you see where do you what do you see yourself at this point? Do you see yourself as a writer, an editor, a podcaster, all of the above, just a baseball person? Yeah. Well, it's complicated. So I'm I I turned 50 at the end of last year. Uh and I I don't mean to uh talk about my my well my midlife crisis has been on you were around for some of it it's been ongoing for a <laughs> very long time it's, so i i mean it's it's just it's it's longer than like the extended cuts of all of the lord of the rings movies you know it's it's i'm going to actually write more for bp and starting in the near future because i only write intermittently right now the the consulting part being the larger part of the job and i i want to do more of it because it's it's my first love uh i I love the podcasting. I like being able to talk to people. Mm-hmm. And the the great thing about the infinite inning is that it's not, I mean, like it's got, a, a, I would say it's a niche show, but it's got a solid audience and a reliable audience. People who like just kind of like the way I think and like the stories that I tell, which is massively flattering. And it's like I suddenly have thousands of friends that I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. And the sensation, and maybe you have had this too, whether through this show or up and in. But when I sit down and I say on this microphone, hey, welcome back to the show. I'm really glad to be talking to you. I kind of know who I'm talking to. Like I, and, and I don't mean that I've met them all, but it's like a, a concrete, uh, a, a real group of people that I can visualize and feel good about. And it's not just like, and this happens more with the baseball writing where you just kind of send it out. You, you know, even if you get comments, it's it's not this human interaction exactly. You just write it and it's gone. But with this, I really do feel like I'm having a conversation with people. And it it's it's good to do, but it's it's also really, really time consuming the way that I do it. Because like like this show, it's very long and uh I tell two original stories each week in addition to interviewing somebody. So for example, this week I've got to figure out what those two stories are and by about this time tomorrow I've had to have to finish reading a 300-page book having read a 300-page book the week before. Now I don't I don't book guests every single week, but at this time of year that's a very easy thing to do mm-hmm. and a fun a fun thing to do usually. Plus I love books so much and getting free books is like the most awesome privilege in the world to have people mail you books just get but i don't care what they're about frank send me a book on shrubs i'll talk to the i'll talk to the author and i I love doing that sort of thing so the the problem is that writing also takes a lot of time so that's the one conflict between two different things that i love so you have three podcasts soon to have four (laughs) shrubs with stephen golden (laughs) 
Welcome back to Shrubs. Today we'll be talking <laughs> boxwoods. Boxwoods are technically a tree, not a shrub. God, I can do this. See? Wow. It's all about diversification. See, I want to know. I, I was thinking about this because because we were talking about. Uh, uh, I know you're you're going to get to this, so I'm jumping the gun a little bit. No, but no, 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 no. about about things that in in sort of popular culture that stimulated me this week, and I watched. I didn't watch it sort of perfectly 100%, but I watched most of the latest Ken Burns documentary, which just started this week, which was about Hemingway. Hemingway. And I've not read a ton of Hemingway in my life. I've read a whole no, bunch I of the, either. the short stories, right? I, there's a lot about his style that people have parodied, but I also admire because it's, it's very spare. And if you run into an adverb, it's a really rare thing. See, I just even just said an adverb, really rare thing. Like you don't need them. And you should kill them wherever you find them. There's a, a writing tip for your audience. Adjectives and adverbs are overdone. So I like that aspect of things. And the short stories, are, which were from like mostly from his like 20s, are really, really good. Again, really spare, and they, they punch you. But the documentary, I'm not, it wasn't bad exactly. It was good, actually. And it told you a lot about kind of how screwed up he was. And that's fine. Like a lot of artists are screwed up. A lot of people are screwed up. But what, I, I, what bothers me is that I think no documentary, and Ken Burns has done Mark Twain, you can watch any of them, right? None of them can tell you. They can tell you, like, that mom and dad were nasty people or that the twin brother died in the womb or or whatever, whatever sort of trauma animates a person. But what they don't tell you is what is the thing in Ernest Hemingway's brain or Twain's brain or Faulkner's brain or Charles Dickens' brain, anybody really, it doesn't have to be like a, a famous novelist like that, that allows a door to open and new worlds come through it mm-hmm. and new people. Like I, I happen to like Charles Dickens, for example. I, I had to read a whole bunch of him in, in high school and college and I've read him as as an adult. And there's a guy who like could sit down and again, we're talking in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s and say like, I'm going to write something like 800 pages now, and I'm going to populate this book with a cast of 100 people, and they're going to be in compelling situations, and each one of them is going to be a fully realized human being. And it's not just, like, and this, I feel envy of this, Kevin, because I, I think you know, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to brag, I can make words on a page hike around in pretty good order. And mm-hmm. I can make people chuckle and I can inform them and I can say things that are, you know, occasionally witty or hopefully give you sort of a punchy takeaway in an essay. But I don't think I have that door in my brain. Not like that. Not like Hemingway did. Not like any of those other writers. And the one thing that no one can say is what is it that separates, well, me and my limit limited facility with imagination and creation from them where where they had the ability to to make the words do things that I do but they also had this ability to be gods and I I I would really like to know and maybe there's no answer but but that's why writer documentaries are always disappointing should we get to moment of culture yeah please it's time for a moment of culture I do want to talk about that yeah we talk about things that we saw or listened to I was going to talk about I, you know what? I'm going to talk about this movie. There's a video game I want to talk about, but I want to finish it first. Um, so, uh, you, look, it's a it's a pandemic. We're home every night, and it's it's. I I, I think maybe the most frequently uttered phrase uh, in this house is, "What are we going to watch now?" Um, which is that's how you spend your evenings, right? That's all you got. 
And um, we have all sorts of streaming services, and, and one that we have that I highly recommend is the Criterion Channel. Yes. Um, so my first question, have you seen Blood Simple, the first Coen Brothers movie? Yes, and I like it very much. And, great. And it's a, it's a great film for, for one thing. Francis McDormand is in it kind of in a, a breakthrough part, so that presages everything right up to this very minute with Nomadland. Right. So she's in it, and obviously she's married to one of the Coen brothers. Um, great movie. It's, I think it's a, so Blood Simple's on HBO Max. We'll go watch that. But on the Criterion <laughs> channel, just was running in, just like scrolling through what's new in the Criterion channel, and there was a movie called A Woman, A Gun, and a Noodle Shot. Are you aware of this movie? I am now that that you mention it, but I have not seen it. Okay, I wasn't aware of it, um, and so I found out about it. And so uh, this uh, in China it was called a simple noodle story, which is a great thing. So this is <laughs> this director loved Blood Simple, and he made a Chinese version of Blood Simple. Like it just it says this is a you know the opening credits you know this is you know adapted from Blood Simple. Um, it doesn't take place in, in modern days, but simple that takes place centuries ago. Um, but it takes place in China in a small town and it's the same characters. Like there's the, the bad guy instead of owning a bar, he owns a noodle shop, right? Right. There's the white, there's the wife he abuses. There's the guy who works there, who she has an affair with and they agree they got to take care of that guy. Um, there's the, the funny coworkers who are kind of on top of things. There's the, the hardened detective, um, who, who gets in the way a lot, but also, you know, is, is a big part of the, the violence. It's really strange and interesting. It's, it's also quite beautiful. Like, like super, super saturated colors. It takes place in, like this, like little desert town in China. It was just fascinating as, as someone who's seen blood simple. I don't know, 20 times um, to see suddenly like this weird Chinese version of it. It was kind of amazing. And does it work as a film noir? Cause I mean, that's sort of what blood. It's simple a little more. Yes. It's, 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 it's a little goofier. Um, there's there's some more like purely funny moments, supposed to always dark funny moments. <laughs> um, it's a little lighter, um, but it's the same. It's the same thing. It's it's just kind of amazing. I was um, I had no idea this thing existed. I was like, we should watch this. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I can I can recommend a lot, kind of along the lines of foreign films, not Chinese but Korean. I've been intermittently. I and, and some people writing for me have been doing a series of great baseball film reviews at BP. And I haven't written this up yet, but it's it's available at Amazon Prime. And maybe you've seen it. It's a Korean baseball film called Mr. Go. No, I've not seen this. And, are, you, and are you familiar with Mr. Go? I am not familiar with Mr. Go, but uh, we are very familiar with the Korean cinema, so I'm interested. Mr. Go is a gorilla who plays baseball. Mr. Go has is it's like a, a fairy tale in that... There's a, a a young girl. She's part of a circus sideshow, and she loves baseball. She learned baseball from her grandfather, and the bad guys, the mobsters, are going to steal her circus sideshow after he dies if she doesn't make a whole lot of money. But she has taught Mr. Go to hit so well that he is purchased for the Japanese major leagues, and I've, I haven't finished the film, to be honest. I, I'm halfway through, but... <laughs> It's so much fun, and I realize it's CGI and everything, but in the same way that people are currently watching Kong versus Godzilla, which means they're they're essentially watching cutscenes from video games for two hours. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really satisfying in that 
he looks like what a really good baseball playing gorilla would look like. Insofar as I can tell to the point of the movie, Mr. Go is like 12 for 12 with 12 home runs. Because if the pitcher gets it anywhere near the plate, he just takes this one-handed swing, clock, and it goes something like 700 feet. That's the joke of the movie, is that just he can kill any baseball. And it's hilarious. I don't. It's very satisfying to watch this CGI gorilla destroy baseballs. And it's. I recommend it to anybody. It's. It's cathartic. That's all. I, all I have to say. So, what is your actual moment of culture? <laughs> Once we get past the the baseball hitting gorilla. <laughs> well, besides the the Hemingway thing, you know what that that made me think of, and this is in the in the film noir department and the baseball department too. Because it inexplicably has Jim Bouton in it, which is is Robert Altman's Long Goodbye, which is a is a film noir from the seventies, which is partially about a murder and about a Hemingway character played uh, by uh, oh shoot I'm gonna blank on his name now Sterling he's in The Godfather too as the crooked cop a uh, really famous actor but uh, it's also mostly about cat food or at least the first half hours about cat food uh, Sterling Sterling Hayden Sterling Hayden thank you yeah tremendous actor who drank a lot and uh, apparently played that part uh, in which he is playing a severely alcoholic writer by being severely alcoholic and it's it's very effective and seems kind of real to the actual uh, Ernest Hemingway but it is uh, Elliot Gould uh, as the weirdest like not Humphrey Bogart Raymond Chandler detective uh, not only trying to solve a murder which may or may not have also killed Jim Bouton, but uh, trying to find a food that his cat will eat. And uh, it's a, a great, great movie. And I, I, it was not reviewed well at the time, but it is certifiably a classic. And Sterling Hayden might be better known as General Ripper in Dr. Strangelove. Right, right. And like Which I he said, he actually chews up the scenery every right. time he shows up. He's amazing in that. Right. And he does in this film too, but it's sort of appropriate. That's it. Like, have you known somebody like that? Like, this is the thing I got out of the Hemingway thing. And this is what he's like in the movie too. I mean, Sterling Hayden is, he's a great guy until he's not. He's the best guy until he's not. And then he's the worst guy. Um, Yes, I think. Uh, yes. In fact, I think most people who can be truly great are actually like that. But do they, do they have to descend into abusiveness? Yes. <laughs> I, like, like, honestly, like seriously, when I think about, honestly, I, so, so when I think about like four people like that, who are just insanely like, yes. And think like it super intense and amazing stuff. Like it takes a toll. So of those four that I can think of in my life, three are, are dead. Right. That's exactly. I mean, and, and Hemingway, obviously, uh, ended his life uh, earlier than it that it would have been otherwise, but uh, yeah, that's that's a difficult. I mean, that, I think, the, yeah, I think it just comes to the territory, right? And but that the part of them that's compelling is amazing, and like, and again, Hemingway was this nasty guy, but he got married four times because he that other part must mm-hmm. have must have been really really compelling appealing enough, yeah, yeah, appealing enough, and then you know inevitably it 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 wears off and and that's the thing i think about a lot too like you know the 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 part where you say i do and and the curtain comes down that's never the end of a relationship you also have to like get groceries and fix the plumbing and do all that sort of boring stuff where if you're an asshole it, it takes even longer than it would have otherwise right um oh man look how long we've gone steve we're going to stop okay <laughs> that's fine um I, I just, want to thank you, I thank just you for stood up Howard on. Bryant for you. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. No, fantastic. I feel uh, you shouldn't have. No, no, um, that's good. Uh, thanks for coming on, as always. Well, not as always. First time you did you did a you did old shows with me. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you've done mine. Always enjoy having you on. Always enjoy your insight. Um, always enjoy the your intelligence, which well, thank you don't you. find a lot of people like that. Well, I appreciate that, and that that's uh, that means a lot because who wants to be thought of as dumb, really? Uh, but no, it's, yeah, it's not easy. Trust me. Yeah. Um, well, no, nobody thinks of you as dumb. You you are like I said the the last good the one good man in Sodom. I mean, you're not in Sodom anymore. Now you're in Illinois. You're the one good man in Illinois. There's a few of us in Illinois. Well, you've got to balance off Tony Larusa, so that's like a big weight. <laughs> So Steven, thanks for coming on. Thanks to Bradford for coming on, talking to us at the All-Star Game. That's the end of Episode 8. Episode 9 will be out around this time next week. So thanks for listening.